Right, welcome members and declare the meeting open. In the room today I have Robin Newton, um, then I have the Vice Chair Kelly Armstrong, I have Andy Allen and I have Alex Eason. And on Starleaf with us we have Mark Durkin and Sinead Ennis. So you are all very welcome today. Um, I'll start then off on agenda item number one, which is apologies. We haven't received any apologies at this stage, so I'll move on to item sure. number Sorry, go ahead, Sinead. Yeah, can I give an apology for fraud, please? Absolutely. No problem. Thank you. Okay, I'll move on to agenda item two, which is chairperson's business. Um, so it's just to let members know um, that, or well, some of you were present there. On Tuesday, the committee held its first um, agreed series of informal stakeholders briefing events. Um, for those who were unable to attend, the topic was housing, and we heard from Justin Cartwright from the Chartered Institute of Housing, Mark Graham from Co-Ownership, Mark Spence from the Construction Employers Federation, NI, and Bernadine McCrory from the Alzheimer's Society. Um, I think members that were there would agree with me. It was a very successful event, um, and it gave that opportunity for, for those witnesses um, to brief the committee and to be open and honest with the committee. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was especially good that Bernadine was included mm -hmm. in that as well, and the, the, the problems that people with dementia face when it comes um, to housing. So, um, so I just want to say that I've asked the clerks to go now and look at a second event um, in the new year. Uh, we haven't decided what that topic will be. There are lots of people who have written to come in and brief us, um, but all been well. We'll get one organised for then. Um, any member want to make any comment on that? Or happy enough to move on? Okay. All right, so, but you're happy enough that we arrange then another one for yes. January because it was really worthwhile. Yeah, all right, good stuff. Okay, then. Um, Another one thing I want to say, we have a very full agenda for the meeting of the 10th and 17th of December, including the Minister offering to brief the committee again at the meeting on the 17th of December to cover housing, Casement Park and the sub-regional stadia programme. So, members, for both of those days, I want to propose that we start again at 9am on both of those dates, so that, again, is the 10th and the 17th for a 9am start. Yes, Kelly? I was just going to ask, um, I know the Minister has said that she wasn't intending to open the job start scheme while um, you know, we're in this current circuit breaker, but we still haven't had any details on the job start scheme, um, and it may be starting about that time. Is okay. she intending Someone to give us a briefing? Yes, yep. Sorry, they've offered a briefing, I think, on the 10th of oh, December. Not okay. Okay. That's Thank okay. you. Thank you. I know the committee had written and we hadn't received responses back the past few weeks, so the 10th of December, yes, okay. we're getting a briefing on that. Excellent. Okay, that's good. All right, so members happy enough with our 9am starts then? Yeah. That'll do, good stuff. Um, then also members, after our meeting on the 12th of November, we wrote to the department on the issue of the musical instruments for band scheme to support a three-week extension to the time period for applications. We still have not had a reply and the deadline for the scheme has passed. It passed on Monday, um, so we still haven't received a reply on that. I know that the question was asked of, Morris Bradley asked it in topicals in the chamber on Monday. And the minister was at that stage was unaware of any letter that the committee had sent, and was also seemed quite shocked that, that it was only a 17-day turnaround. Um, that uh, given the fact that many of these bands or individuals or groups or whatever that may be uh, haven't had the opportunity to meet up or to discuss um, funding, so. Uh, members, I would propose that we we write again just through to the minister and ask what has been done on that, um, if that's okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. All right. Then I'm going to move on to uh, agenda item number three, which is the draft minutes. 
Um, if members want to turn to page six, they'll find the draft minutes of the 19th of November 2020. Can I ask our members content to agree those minutes? Agreed. As drafted, yes? Agreed. 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 Okay, thank you. Okay, then we'll move on to agenda item four, which is matters arising. Uh, members have been provided at page 12 with a reply from the orchestra to committee queries following the recent briefing session. The orchestra has confirmed that it is using social media to attract new fans and has no evidence of musicians leaving Northern Ireland to go elsewhere to perform. And they have provided a link to the, or the online Christmas concert. Um, so members, any comments or queries on that or content to note that as well? Yeah, okay. Then can I move on and inform members, uh, again, you've been provided page 14 with a letter from Sport and I on phase two of the COVID-19 grants for sporting organisations. Sport NI has provided a comprehensive reply outlining how it plans to administer phase two COVID-19 grants for sporting. Um, the reply also provides details of the application criteria, a breakdown of the funds distributed to date, and a list of the organisations that have received those funds. Again, are members content to note or any comments on that? Content? Okay. Content. Then again, if I can ask members then to turn to page 35 of their packs, and they'll find a letter there from Belfast City Council in relation to the redevelopment of Avenue Leisure Centre site. I know we've had a bit of um, back and forward on this one. Um, the council has con confirmed that it recognises the IFA as the key organisation responsible for the development of football in Belfast and has engaged extensively with the IFA. In the development of Avenil, it highlights that Avenil is part of the Council's Leisure Transformation Programme, which is a £105 million investment in seven brand new leisure centres across the city. And following consultation with a wide range of industry experts and key stakeholders, including the IFA, it was decided that the redevelopment of Avenil would focus largely on outdoor 3G football pitch provision because of the lack of Council-owned 3G pitch provision in East Belfast. Again, members content to note that, that we've finally got that all clarified, yes? Yeah. Content? Thank you. Don't take my word for it. Okay. okay, thank you, Rob. Okay, and then I've one more final thing, and that's at page 38 <coughs> of your meeting packs. Mm -hmm. You'll find a further departmental update on the COVID-19 Charities Fund. The fund closed on Friday the 21st of August 2020. Um, 640 applications had been submitted and all 501 eligible charities were supported. As the committee heard at last week's meeting, there was a total spend of 8.8, .8, leaving 6.7 million available um, to support charities from the 1st of October 2020 to the 31st of March 2020. And also the minister has indicated that she wishes to launch pre-application information in December. And a call for applications will open on the 6th of January until, is that, yeah, 6th of January until the 22nd of January 2021, yeah. Okay, members, are members content with that as well, to note that also? Yeah. Can, can, I, can I just yes. ask, Chair, in terms of the bodies that uh, were not supported under it, um, um, as really just for information, I suppose, in terms of those charitable organisations who made an application and the hundred and whatever it was who were ruled ineligible for support, if you could maybe try and understand why, what type of bodies they were, 
and why they didn't meet the criteria. Okay, I, I think we might be able to ask that of our next people in the brief as well, because we've seen three or our, our, our next brief, so we can ask them, but we can also ask the department as well. Yeah, okay. Um, sure. That's perfectly, yeah, okay. Kelly? Yeah, the last line on, on page 39 of our pack there where um, the officials be happy to provide further information. I think it would be useful to have that. I know that we do have CO3 coming in, but the, the department are the ones who are handling the criteria for this grant. It would be good to, to see what that is. As Robin has said, there were a number who weren't successful before. And I don't know whether that's poorly filled out application forms. They were maybe charities based elsewhere or, or what the crack is, but um, it's just to see what the criteria is um, because there's a few outstanding charity grants due. Dormant accounts is supposed to be looking at sustainability of charities, so what's this one for? If it's just to get them through COVID, fine, but if we could get clarification just what that's for. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Mark, you wanted to come in? I uh, thank you, Chair, and, and CO3 might be able to clear up some of these things, but, but, but I think some of these questions are more pertinent uh, for the department. Robin, you touched on, on, on those charities that were ineligible. It is important that we understand why uh, they weren't able to qualify, but, but there, we also have to be cognizant of the fact that there are many charities out there who didn't apply for various reasons they might have already determined that they wouldn't be eligible and therefore didn't bother applying. Uh, because they had reserves, and, and, and that would have knocked them out. Now those reserves, this many months on, will, will have been uh, depleted. So there'll probably be more people eligible now than, than, than were uh, for the first tranche of funding. Also just a wee concern maybe in terms of, of time. If the, the fund is going to be released on the 6th, it's good to have the pre-application information out there first. But when is it going to close and when, when are charities going to get the, the money they so badly need, and when are they going to have to have it spent by? You know, I, I know this is going to apply to a number of departments and a number of sectors, but uh, you just feel we're creating a, a sort of Brewster's Millions a situation where having waited so long for money uh, and support that whenever they do get it, they might not have time to spend it. I think that's a very good point, Mark. I know it says here that the, the, the application process will close on the 22nd of January. Um, I know certainly from speaking to people from the arts as well, and they are saying, you know, by the time the money comes through, they have six weeks to spend this money, which isn't a great deal of time um, for what they need. So I think there is an issue around that, and that's across the board for any funding. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think there needs to be better, or a lot more clarity on that. No, thanks for that, Mark. All right, members, any other comments or queries on that part before we move on? Nope, okay. Then we'll move on to agenda item five, which is a briefing by CO3 on the impact of COVID-19 on the charity sector. Um, can I inform members that their papers are at agenda, or sorry, the agenda item is at page 41 of their meeting packs. And can I welcome to the meeting Nora Smith, Sarah Quinlan and Barry McCauley. You're all there with us. I can see Sarah and I can see Nora and I can see Barry. Happy days. Sure, Good. Can I just return in Sorry. as a charity trustee, please? You can indeed, Andy, no problem. Okay, um, Nora, is it yourself? I'll hand over to you. Yeah, great. And Paula, Chair of the committee, thank you so much for the opportunity to, to, come, to come along this morning. And um, firstly, I will we dog, and put a big dog um, sitting behind me here. So if the postman arrives to start sparking, then I apologise in advance. Um, so, in, in relation to um, 
our sector, and you know, obviously it's been at the heart of the response to COVID-19 in coming together to deliver services, and, and the response has been nothing short of incredible. It has brought considerable hardship. It has affected some people and communities disproportionately, and the same is true of our sector. You know, the sector is diverse, and the crisis has impacted on our members differently. So for those organisations who raise their income, through a social enterprise model or through the community fundraising, and mm -hmm. um, their their business model, their income model has effectively crumbled. So some of those are charities have been able to access financial support. However, there are still a high number that have been able to, and it is because of the the, 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 the criteria. I'm, I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to talk about that. And um, for those who have been able to access support, it has provided some relief. However, when you're looking at the scale of the losses. It doesn't touch the size in terms of mitigating against the scale of income that they have lost. You know, you're looking at hundreds of thousands, in some cases, millions worth of um, pounds of losses. So, although a £75,000 grant is welcome, it's much short of what is actually needed. So, in terms of the short term support, we need the COVID charity fund to reopen as soon as possible. And, and Mark's point is spot on in terms of the timing of this. So, Myself, I lost with Nicola and RCM and met with the Minister, I think it was three weeks ago, who had given a commitment <coughs> to open this fund. You know, the six point eight million pound underspend has been with the, the, the department since September. Um, so the, the fact that the fund's going to be reopened beside Christmas is, is welcome. Um, I am slightly disappointed that the the pre-application information is going to be this side of Christmas with the fund opening. Next year, again, we have a really short window and we have until March 2021 to get this money spent. And, and in addition to the 6.8 million, and we also have an additional 5 million pound, which was announced last week from the Department of Finance. And again, it's our understanding that this money has to be spent by March 2021. So the sense of urgency to get this fund open sooner rather than later. And ideally, although the pre-application information has been made available on the side of Christmas, if there's any possibility of opening it in December rather than waiting to January, I would absolutely encourage that. Um, on a separate but related point, I think it is also important to highlight we have seen the Department of Finance respond directly to support the hospice movement in Northern Ireland. Millions have been allocated to support these frontline, much needed, credible service, and it's a great example of being able to respond and support um, those credible services. So, the DOFRD, by example, here. So, is there an opportunity to look at a similar model of equitable support for other health and social care charities that are providing life saving services and finding themselves in a similar position? It's not something that um, it's not something that I have raised with the Department of um, Communities, but I thought it was worthy of um, highlighting to you today. I also want to highlight the role of furlough. Um, it's been a lifeline of support for many in the sector, um, but it raises challenges in that, and we, need to, we spoke about this when I raised the committee previously. It's forcing charities to step staff down at exactly the time when they need them to step up. And um, the Minister did a commitment to write to Conor Murphy to ask him on behalf of the Executive to the Chancellor and um, calling for a special exemption. Now, I heard this morning that that letter is due to be sent today. So, again, this is the sense of urgency to, to get that letter. Um, whatever support the, the Communities Committee can offer as well. 
to ask for a special exemption, which in the short term could be a game changer for so many, for so many um, of our members. So in addition to supporting the short term, I also want to highlight the importance of living to the longer term. Um, and there's a, there's a real opportunity here to reset the relationship between the sector and government. You know, so as well as the vast societal challenges the charities are responding to, charities and social enterprises, large and small across the region here, have faced such an avalanche of multifaceted demands all at once. So there's the short-term issues and challenges that we need to address, but there's also the longer term and the need to provide more infrastructure support as well. So on that note, I'm going to hand over to Sarah for the Good morning, members. Um, thanks so much for the opportunity to um, uh, present to you this morning. So uh, my name is Sarah Quinlan. I'm the chief exec with the Children's Heartbeat Trust. And we are a smaller Irish-based charity um, that provides practical, emotional, and financial support to children and young people living with congenital heart disease and their families. Um, you might know this, but congenital heart disease is the most common birth defect um, in Northern Ireland and there are over 200 babies born each year here with a congenital heart defect. And each year we as a charity provide a wide range of support services to these families including financial support when they have to travel to England or the Republic of Ireland for their um, child's surgery or treatment, um, parent accommodation at the Children's Hospital in Belfast, counselling, youth programmes, local groups, family events and respite stays. And we provide these services to over 500 families in Northern Ireland each year. We also fund pioneering research and we advocate for these vulnerable children and their families. So in reality, the core of our income model is community fundraising. We receive no government support and we have no dependence on the public purse. COVID-19 has hit us really hard. Um, community fundraising, as we know, has virtually disappeared. Um, people are no longer able to gather inside or outside in any large capacity. And corporate support has also um, vanished as businesses um, focus on their own survival and um, keeping funds in-house, basically. So the impact of COVID-19 is that we have lost a huge level of income for a small charity like us. We are 33% down on what we brought in at this stage last year. And um, last year we brought in around 500,000 pounds. This year we are hopeful for 250,000 pounds, which represents a 50% loss of income. With pairing back our services and our equipment to core, um, the bare minimum really, this is leaving us in the best instance in a deficit position in the region of 100,000 pounds this financial year. So we didn't meet the criteria to access the previous um, funding round, which is really frustrating for us because it was set out as a loss of income support. And as evidence, our loss of income is huge for us. Um, and yet because we did have reserves, we were unable to access the support. It appears that we are being penalized for exercising good governance, which is incredibly frustrating. So we are not in our reserves and we have had no financial support from the government, except for the furlough scheme, which as Nora has already referenced, we're really grateful for it, but in order to access that, we've also had to furlough staff and we are delivering the key services that our families rely on. So we're now dealing with this detrimental financial impacts of COVID-19 on our income streams at a time when conversely our services are facing increased demands from the families we support. Um, for example, last calendar year we provided financial support to 171 families travelling um, for their child's heart surgery or treatment. 
This year, to date already, we've supported 202 families. That's an increase of 31 families. Last year, our Heart Bear Christmas appeal, which supports Heart Families in Hardship with food and toy parcels, um, supported 42 families and 85 children. This year, we have 56 families and 149 children on our books. They tell us of the bleak Christmas that they are facing, mainly due to the impact of COVID-19 on their own family incomes. And these are families who were maybe just scraping by before the pandemic. They now find themselves really, really struggling to make ends meet. Um, like we know that the services that we provide are life-changing and have a long-term impact on families' approach to this life-limiting condition and their well-being in learning how to live with it. And we know this because they tell us this current challenging environment isn't going to stop us continuing our work for these families. However, the increased demand on our services, coupled with the huge loss of income, will have an increasingly devastating ability and uh, impact on our ability to deliver for this vulnerable group. Short term, what we need is support from the government to enable our valuable work to continue and that of other charities who find themselves in a similar position to us. The COVID fund needs to reopen promptly. Um, obviously, we're talking about it now. But I can only reiterate how prompt this fund needs to reopen. I mean, we've been waiting on it to reopen for months. It's critical that it reopens as soon as possible. And it's also crucial that the um, criteria um, is considered and it's changed, basically. We need the criteria to look at loss of income and annual deficit and income as it goes through years. And I ask this because we would like to be treated with the same consideration as the business community whose grant funding was not based on reserves but rather on the direct impact of COVID-19. Human factors like ours are often the cornerstone of support provisions for vulnerable communities across Northern Ireland and in doing so create massive savings for the government. This support is not only necessary but it's entirely fit and proper. Right. Over to myself now, uh, Barry McCauley from the Stroke Association Northern Ireland. So I'm coming from, from a, a, a sort of an example of a UK charity and I know a lot of my counterparts who are country directors and other UK charities are facing the same issues uh, as we are in the Stroke Association. So we provide a myriad of services across the country to uh, stroke survivors, we have emotional support services, uh, general support services, uh, financial uh, support, and speech and language therapy services for people who lost their, uh, their speech after stroke. So, rehabilitation, uh, uh, you know, gambling services, which are all all under threat, sadly, uh, from the 1st of April. I really fear for the services due to COVID and, and what's happening. A lot of the issues similar to what Sarah has mentioned there, um, we, we have lost. In Northern Ireland, we've lost 125,000 pounds this year of our own direct fundraising. That's because of all the events cancelled and corporate sponsorship going down, etc. We've also lost a further 100 grand with the UK system. Our organisation has lost six million pounds this year. So the grant that I get from London, literally, to to support our services is going to be reduced by 100 grand on the 1st of April because we're going to be on the road to this income. So there's a, a loss roughly this year, 225,000. And you know, don't need to be a genius to work out what that means. You know, that, that is going to be staff and it's going to be frontline, sadly. Um, support to date 
exactly the same as our federal scheme, most of it would be political for that, and we could have done like that. But Canada, if I'm honest, it's just put on the IME for us. We, um, we got no money from the, the, the department's fund. We were in that bracket that Mark mentioned earlier. We just saw the, the, the eligibility criteria and thought there was no point in putting a bid in because it mentioned reserves and, and the impending closure. So we're a UK charity. We have reserves in London. They were being count, would be counted. And we're not closing. The, the Stroke Association will not close. Well, it takes extreme challenges, but it won't close. So we, we were ruled out immediately for that. Sadly, we were also ruled out about three other programs that the Community Foundation had sourced money for, for grants. Uh, again, they saw us as a UK charity with uh, an income threshold way above their 500 grand. Yet we, we as Northern Ireland Stroke Association are under 500 grand and we should have been uh, deemed like that. But again, bureaucracy and, and accounts and stuff ruled us out of everything. So we, we basically have got nothing and yet we've lost 225 grand. Uh, the, you'll be surprised to hear our demand for our services, just like service, has gone up. Uh, people are having strokes during COVID, people are recovering from strokes, they're not having rehab. The, the, the rehab that they would have got, people weren't going to hospital at the height of the last phase and um, back, you know, the backlog of issues, emotional support issues, mental health caused by that. It, it just means our services are, are busier than ever before, yet they're all now under threat because of the loss of income. I think short term, I would back up everything that Sarah mentioned and that uh, CO3 mentioned there about the, the, you know, the, the monies now that need to be released. But for us, that's short term and all that will do will, will help us out for the next six months or whatever. Me, for me, the biggest issue I have is the future contracts that we have with the Department of Health and a lot of other health and social care charities are in the same boat. For some reason in Northern Ireland, we only get around 50-60% of these um, contracts. Uh, and we, the charities subsidise the rest of the services with their own money. We no longer have that money to subsidise, so in the stroke sector, ourselves and Chester and Stroke deliver uh, commission services, but we get around 50 to 60 percent. This is unsustainable. From the 1st of April, we won't be able to deliver the, uh, the contract salary. And to me, that's something that really just needs to be fixed long term. You know, you can't imagine the Department of Health or the Trust going into a private relationship and giving someone 50, 60 percent of a contract. I mean, it's unbelievable that that happens. Sadly, it's been just something systemic in Northern Ireland that appears to be uh, normal practice and that the trusts expect, oh, but sure you can do your fundraising, or sure you've got money from London, you'll make that up. Sadly, we can't anymore. And on the 1st of April, well, in January, I'll be making 10 of my, uh, I'll be starting consultation with 10 of my direct service uh, staff. That's our goal service, uh, Dawn, uh, unless there's some sort of rescue package or um, the contracts become 100% rather than 50 to 60%. So it's as simple as that, and I'm not being dramatic about this, that is what's going to happen. We will not close as an organisation, we will continue then as a, a lobbying campaign organisation, but our staff of 25 will go down to about 12. And that's, the, that's what I'm preparing for in the new year. So it's quite drastic, and, and I'm extremely frustrated at not being able to get any government support because we're a UK charity, we're deemed out of resources, we're deemed out of all this money from London, which doesn't exist. And that's that's the big frustration. And I, I can I do have a number of peers in the and EKHRA's company directors and all that. You have the same issues. Um, so um, sadly that that's a bit of a big picture from us. Okay, Barry, thank you. Thank you, Nora, and thank you, Sarah. Um
just to, to kick off, I, I know I sat in the health committee, as you all know, I sat in the health committee for a number of years, and I, I knew then of the reliance that we had on our, our, our third sector um, when it came to delivering services and meeting essential need within our communities when it came to health. And I know that going forward, when we, you know, post-pandemic, um, there will be an even greater over-reliance on your sector, um, because we know that many within that health sector have suffered greatly because of, of appointments being cancelled, surgeries being cancelled, people are living in an awful lot of pain, they're requiring that help, and that help is coming primarily from the third sector and no one else. Um, you had mentioned earlier, I know Nora, you had mentioned that you had met with the Minister a few weeks, our Minister, with Minister for Communities a few weeks ago, and I'll ask you something specific on that in a minute, but I want to know, have you met with the Health Minister? Because uh, you're quite right about the contracts, I remember that from many years going back as well, and the difficulties around that, and how you were subsidising those contracts in order to provide that absolutely essential service to, as I said, to those many, many people in distress, in pain, whether that's through, uh, whether that's through mental health or physical health. So just if you can answer that quickly, just have you had that meeting with the health minister yet? Can't hear you, Nora. I can hear you now. Go ahead. Yeah, so representatives of the um, Health and Social Care Special Interest Group that we have um, did meet with the Health Minister and we did bring up the, the broad issue of a funding and full cost recovery was um, discussed with, within that. Mm -hmm. um, it is important to highlight that although this is a big concern within the Department of Health, there's other government departments as well that um, are issuing contracts which are not full cost recovery as well. I did raise it with, um, yeah. with the Department for Communities Minister when we met um, three weeks ago, and she had given a commitment to write to her executive colleagues on this issue, but what she had asked for was a stronger evidence base of um, examples of where this was the case, and Barry provides a really clear example. There's lots, lots of others as well, so what we have done is we're in the process of uh, we've issued a survey to our members and we're collecting a stronger evidence based on what full cost recovery looks like or what it doesn't look like and um, for a range of con contracts, not just within the Department of Health, but across yeah. a range of other government departments as well. Um, so if, 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 if it um, would be appropriate, you know, when, we, when we're in position, I would share those findings with the committee. No, that would be... Oh, sorry, Barry, go ahead. Just to say, we, we, we as the Stoke sector, myself and the counterparts, yes, Tarnashow did meet the Minister directly about this about three weeks ago. Um, and obviously, the Minister has other priorities, and I don't ask, we didn't hold much hope out on it. And so, we, we feel we need to keep lobbying on it. No, absolutely, because I can say that, as I said, there will be an even more reliance on your sector in, in the weeks, months and possibly even years ahead. You provide a service that the, the health service cannot physically provide. Um, so absolutely essential. No, and I think the committee, I'm just speaking here, I'm sure they'll agree, would be more than happy to write to all of those other departments. I know it's not just health, there are others. Um, and I could think of, you know, with justice as well, there's many um, of good work done in the third sector there also and others as well. So just to come back then to the 
meeting with the, uh, with uh, Minister Nicolin. Um Nora, you'd said met about that meeting three weeks ago, which is good, and I'm glad that took place. Um, and I know that criteria. Sarah had mentioned criteria. Did you have uh, to speak to her about the criteria and how that criteria was phrasing out um, some of those those charities? Yeah. Um, the, the criteria wasn't discussed specifically in that meeting, but um, a meeting um, I think a week before um, department officials had met with a range of different representatives, including myself, around what the criteria should consider. Um, I think we're all learning as we go through this as well. There was a recognition that it was too destructive and that it was that you had to have losses um, as a joint purpose of COVID-19 and that you weren't able to recover. Losses by, by the end of September. Um, so, my understanding is that we're going to have lost your Oh, Sorry, Nora, you're, you're coming in and out there with us, so you are a wee bit. It's not very clear. What, what I may do is turn my camera off just to give me a bit more bandwidth. That would do, that's great, no problem. Um, that's, so, the, yep. the joys of rural broadband. Oh, I know. Um, it's, so, from yeah, so we, we didn't discuss the criteria specifically um, at that meeting. What the minister had given an assurance was that the fund would open, that would open this side of Christmas. I did meet with officials alongside other representatives from the uh, from the broader sector a couple of weeks before, and the issue of the criteria was discussed at that. Um, and we did highlight the importance of having a broader set of criteria so that organisations such as Children's Harmony Trust and um, the Stroke Association um, can, um, would be eligible moving forward. When you're looking at um, such dramatic losses, it, it does seem deeply unfair that if you do have reserves, which potentially are being ring fenced for, um, for essential services, um, or that you're part of a UK-wide structure, there is a perception that somehow you'll, you'll, you'll get the resources through that. And we simply know that that's not the case. So I'm hopeful that um, the department have, have learned from that and that we will have a wide set of criteria which will, will enable a wide range of charities to be able to access support that haven't been able to. There's also the question as well that although some of our members have been able to access support, it's not enough. Um, you know, so there, there has to be the opportunity as well for those organisations that have been able to, have been able to access support that are that have the ability to reapply as well. You have the six point eight million, but you also have an additional five million pound, and um, which the Department for Finance and the Department of Finance announced last week. And um, the the real concern is that the criteria obviously has has to be broad enough so that. All charities impacted and um, get the support, and that um, that's issued so as soon as possible. And I know they're talking about the pre-application stage. The side of Christmas, if there's any way to push that and um, to open the actual funding um, process, this side it would just buy members a few extra weeks. No, I absolutely get that because when you think that the last tranche of funding get closed in August. And you know you're looking at what five months then down the line for the next uh, tranche of funding. Um, it, it really isn't good enough for for it to, to help because for many of you it's survival. Um, it's not even just to tick yourselves over. Um, I just wanted to ask around that about the August, the fund, the first tranche that you received. Um, how, how quickly then was the money then distributed, Nora? Once the once the application process closed. 
yeah, it, 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 it was, um, and, and we were one of the recipients of that fund and grateful for that support. And the, the application process was pretty straightforward, and the turnaround time was a matter of weeks. So, it, it, again, you know, it, 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 it was pretty efficient, and that was done through the, the National Lottery Community Fund. And so, it's a hope and expectation that we would have a, a similar straightforward process which would allow. Although applications close at the end of January, it is a possibility if you get if you can get your application in earlier, and um, that potentially then the um, the fund would be awarded before the before the closing date. My expectation is that they're going to be able to subscribe, and um, what hopefully then that will present a, a, a an evidence base that, that more financial support will be needed in the in the new financial year. Okay, thanks, Lettner. Just finally, I mean, we know because we've heard from various charities, um, both as a committee and as individuals, about the difficulties with um, many charities that didn't apply, as Mark had said earlier, um, because of their reserves. But then when we talk about those UK-based charities, as Barry was talking about, I mean, it's in, they're in an even more difficult position. Um, and I know part of that reason, and from what I've been led to believe, is that they're not registered as Northern Ireland charities, so that knocks them out of... Um, quite a lot of funding. So it's just on that issue, Barry. How do, how do we overcome that? Because we see you, I mean, I, you, you, Stroke Association was uh, part of my all-party group that I ran for a number of years here, and I see you very much as a Northern Ireland charity that work for the people of Northern Ireland. Um, so how do we overcome that, or what, what can the committee do um, to try and assist with that? You know, we're, we're working at the with the Community Foundation to try and see what we can produce to almost prove that we are a Northern Ireland charity. They, they see our accounts that we produce to them as a big UK account, you know, with millions of miles covering four countries, and they just see a little addendum of Northern Ireland, and they just they just refuse to accept us as a, you know, a, a Northern Ireland entity in its own right. So we're working with them to see what they want, and then we're working with our accountants to actually produce audit accounts for the Northern Ireland operation. So I'm hoping that will help us um, for those community foundation grants. As for the DFC grant, I'm hoping the likes of that will help us again. It's just evidence. I mean, although we are part of the UK organisation, you're right, Paul, we, we, I, I, I'm the director for Northern Ireland and kind of run it like the organisation in Northern Ireland. We obviously have the links and corporate strategy, but we are Northern Ireland and any money we raise is in Northern Ireland and it is a Northern Ireland charity, but it just bureaucratically, it, it's not meeting these criteria. So I think if I can get the Northern Ireland accounts issue sorted, that will help. But it's almost the funding needs to accept the massive amount of resource that is put into the third sector in Northern Ireland by UK charities, and it's not being accepted at the moment. So I don't think it's any intended, it's an unintended consequence. Uh, just what? Yeah. Go ahead. Um, just, just in relation to UK wide charities being um, um, locked out of the scheme, I do know a number of um, UK wide charities that are looking to register through the Charity Commission in Northern Ireland here. And with one member that I've put in an application um, seven years ago, and they're still waiting for an outcome. And again, they are they're locked out of the fund because they're stuck in a process which sits outside of their control. So there may be a role for the committee, if, if, if you think it's appropriate, to, to reach out to the Charity Commission to see if there's any way of um, Addressing, addressing the, the backlog of registration. Yeah. That, that is truly shocking, Absolutely. Nora, to hear that there is a charity that has been waiting seven years 
Absolutely shocking. I think that is, yeah, I think the committee will be more than happy oh, yes. um, to run, run with that one as well. Um, I know it said it finished. If just one more tiny, tiny thing. Um, and maybe Barry will know this as well. I don't know if Stroke Association have any charity shops. Did uh, I know that there, there are many. I, I had the great pleasure of going to the... The Chest Heart and Stroke one, or sorry, the British Heart Foundation one in Castle Street for their opening a couple of years ago. It was, it was around Christmas time, and I know that that, that 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 brings in an income. But I also know that that also provides as well for so many people um, as well. Did did they receive any funding as as retail units during COVID? Do you know? It's just, a, just you maybe don't know, but just asking. Yeah, we, we don't have the don't have the British Heart Foundation on the big and the cardiovascular one is a big uh, provider of that. Um, and uh, Nora, you might be able to have some of our, our colleagues, I'm not sure what to do this yeah. So, so a number of members that do have retail outlets, um, and they have been um, successful in receiving a grant. And um, it, it differs between each region, though. Um, so, in in Scotland and Wales, if you have multiple retail units, then you got a grant for each of those. In Northern Ireland, the allocation was just for one unit. Um, so there, it, it wasn't equitable and there was a, a great frustration um, a great frustration to a, a great number of members in that space. And so I, I, I was speaking to Michelle from Bernardo's um, earlier this week, and she was highlighting that they lost over a million pounds in the charity shops alone. And it's, it's a separate but related point. Um, we've, we've written to, I've reached out to the Department um, of, uh, for the Economy and the Department of Finance about this retail voucher scheme, making sure that the, um, the, the voucher scheme has been allocated to families, that it also can be spent in charity shops and the high street charity shops again, you know, that, that could be a, a good source of income uh, for, for those that have lost you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of pounds worth um, through. Okay, thanks, Dora. I think then again, that's another uh, a letter from the committee then through to economy and finance, and just asking for them for the for them to clarify um, that as well, and also the letter to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. I think we wrote before on your behalf, so I would uh, yeah, with the committee again will be more than happy to do that. Okay, members, that's me finished for now. I have Robin, and then I have Kelly, and then I have Mark. Happy enough, the chair, deputy chair, goes ahead. Chair, first, you right. ask most of my questions. Okay, sorry, go ahead, Kelly. Um, I thought you let me come back. Yeah, I will. Thank you very much, um, Nora, Sarah, and Barry. Um, I declare an interest at this stage, having worked in the, in the sector for almost 20 years before it became an MLA. Um, one of the frustrations that I have is this inability of many government departments to understand what full cost recovery is and the necessity of it, um, and that contracts and grants are offered with this expectation that um, charities will um, basically subsidise government work. Um, I'm just wondering, on the, on the full cost recovery, have you had any discussions with Maura Doherty, who is supposed to be working on the concordat, the update of the concordat agreement, to ensure as part of that concordat agreement it's built in from the executive an agreement that all provision of grants or funding will be done on a full cost recovery basis? Yeah, and Maura was on the call with the master, and she was, <coughs> so she was, she was privy to that conversation and recognises that we're going to be following up with, with survey results. I've also reached out to, to Anne-Marie Lecler, who's the chair of the Joint Forum as well, for their support, because, as Barry said earlier, it's been a s s systemic issue 
um, and unfortunately we're in a completely different financial environment so we just can't continue unless we operate um, with a full cost recovery model moving forward. So this, there's a real opportunity here to, to reset the relationship we have with government and as part of that and full cost recovery has, has, has to be central. Um, we know in the past that the Welsh Assembly Government took a very different way to doing procurement and did a proactive method where they um, they sought out social enterprises. Um, and to be honest, I see a lot of charities in the work that you do, although you may not call yourself a social enterprise, the fact that you're adding income through fundraising is basically social enterprise work. I'm just wondering, has there been any discussions with the Minister, the Department, or even the Department of Finance about... Um, that review of procurement to ensure then that, that your organisations are on the same footing as every other business that gets a grant from government? Yeah, and, and ultimately this does come down to commissioning um, and you know, how high, high, high contracts are commissioned then. So from, from our perspective in zero three, um, you know, the, the cornerstone of this campaign would be survey results and then from there would be connected with the the Department for Communities and also with the Department of Finance with the view that every government department and on arm's length government department then operates a model of, of full cost recovery because commissioning is here, you're I'm just thinking as well about that um the 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 charity business model at the moment. Because you have been asked to use reserves, which you have rightly said, they're built. reserves are built and are required to be built on known liabilities. So it's for redundancies, it's for three, three months running costs should funding um, fail. Um, because you've had to use those reserves, how many charities in Northern Ireland are now at risk of no longer being viable companies because their reserves have been depleted? Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's obviously very difficult to give you uh, an, an accurate picture on that. All I can go is what feedback I'm getting from members here saying that, you know, on average they would hold between three to six months reserves. Some are somewhere in a bit better position, but they did lifesaver further through, through, through the, the COVID crisis. Yeah. Um, the, the reality is that if they have to keep relying on their reserves, with the model of reduced income, then of course their sustainability is a question. Um, I can't give you a number, yeah. um, and I can't give you a time frame, but it is, it's, it's a huge challenge. And, you know, the, the reality is, you know, there's been huge financial challenges and the sector has experienced um, over years of um, funding cuts. Um, COVID-19 has just put a big highlighter pin and dug us into a uh, Play a bigger financial hold sooner rather than mm -hmm. rather than later. So I think over the course of the next year, we are going to see some charities having those because they're no longer sustainable unless there is more intervention and more support. So there is it's the short term and the longer term support that we yeah. need. Absolutely. I would love to see a review, uh, a holistic review of the income model. As you say, the income model has collapsed at this stage, and it would be good to have that reflection with organisations, charities across Northern Ireland as, as to what would be next if there's another pandemic like this that causes the fall and the collapse in, in fundraising. Um, we can't keep going the way that we're going. But I'm just wondering as well, um, 
Oftentimes in government departments, people see reserves put as this enormous amount of money. Now, I worked in transport charities, and to have to save up on a straight-line depreciation to replace a bus meant that there was thousands sitting in a bank account, but it was there for a particular reason. But there seemed to be an absolute lack of understanding, not in procurement, but actually in the government departments with the civil servants themselves, as to why that reserve was there and what it's for. And then it meant when they were buying services, they were assuming that they should put into the contract that you need to use your reserves to back up what they're doing. Um, do you know or is there any way that, the, that your sector can almost train those civil servants to understand the business model for a charity? Because I'm very worried that they'll be buying services without actually making that contract you know, fit with the companies that they're trying to buy from. Yeah, and I suppose it's, it's part of the reset, and it is it's about you know, our, our, our civil servants understanding our world and the, the, the challenges on the, um, the particular models that we have. Um, and at, at the minute, it does stay very bureaucratic and it does stay very computer says no. Um, so sometimes there is a, a, a basic lack of understanding on. And why we have reserves, what they're there to, um, to, to serve, and um, the level of financial support that's actually needed to, to run the charity effectively. Yeah. So the, there's, there's an opportunity here to reset, to reset that relationship. And as part of it, there has to be an education base of it. I think there has to be a, a rebalance well of the, the power structures between funder and funded. Yeah, I just connect to now. You mentioned wheels there earlier. Just anecdotally, I just I happen to be covering uh, the director role in wheels for the last six months. The contracts are one hundred and fifteen percent. All of them, one hundred percent cost recovery plus fifteen percent to cover the charities overheads. That's right across the board. A million pounds worth of contract. And then I, I have the Northern Ireland accounts uh, looking at me, and, and it's just, I can't understand it. It's the same in England as well, not as close to it, but across England, we get full cost recovery on £10 million worth of contract. Yet in Northern Ireland, we're struggling to get 50 and 60. So there's a real issue. Is there an issue about using social return on investment? Because in Wales, as you say, they buy a service from a charity, but in Northern Ireland, they use the measurement tool of social return on investment, which is quite nice. It says for every pound the public money spends, you're getting X amount of pounds back. But when you do that, it means then that funders are looking at no more than 75%, 85% funding for a service, which means then that you're actually subsidising the health service, you're subsidising all of them. Yeah. Um, just my final question then, is, uh, oh, here, where did it go? Um, the department has said it cannot open the funding in uh, this application round in December. Have they told you why? No, um, and, and to be honest, this is, this is the first time that I've heard that. My, my understanding when I met with the minister was that the fund would open the second Right, okay, okay. It's Thank you. Very something much. then that we can clarify yeah. as well. I so, well. Yeah. You've given us a list here of things you have after this meeting, <laughs> a list of letters, which is good. That's good. Okay, Mark, do you want to come in? Yeah, uh, thank you, Chair, and thanks to uh, Nora, Barry, and, and Sarah for the presentation. Uh, the, the, the questions I was going to ask that you didn't manage to, Chair, uh, Kelly came in, because on to me, maybe on there. I was just wondering, in terms of, of the reserves issue, which has is, is knocked people out of, of qualifying for assistance uh, thus far, and, and Kelly touched on it there, was, I suppose, 
What's reduced income? What's the threat that looming, and if not imminent, at a threat of redundancies? Do you know what sort of tightrope are charities walking there? Do you know as regards eating into their reserves and uh, decreasing uh, their, their viability? And I suppose that they're duty legal and moral that they no doubt feel uh, to their own employees. Just in terms of, of the issues that were raised, Obviously, you're here. You're representative of a sector, but there are many charities of varying shapes and sizes. But the figures that we were hearing today, I mean, we were talking about eye-watering amounts of, of money being lost. But, but it is much more than money, as we all know. You know the impact on services and desperate service users in, 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 need, of, in need of support is really under threat here and struggling. Greatly. So, uh, I mean, the question would have to be if, if no one's going to pick up the tab here to help the charities, is anyone going to pick up the slack in terms of government departments? And I think that's something that you'd ask, Chair, had there been any uh, engagement with the Health Minister. I think that's something that we should be maybe putting to health, uh, if not the, the wider executive, because it is a massive issue that has uh, potentially massive negative repercussions right across society. Yeah. Um, and, and the reality is, you know, we've already seen a reduction in services as part of the cutting exercise in order to protect during the users. Um, you're also seeing cross-cutting through redundancies and we have a number of members that have started that redundancy yeah. process and the feedback you're sharing with me is that this is this is the first of potentially a couple of round redundancies that we're gonna to have to do unless a financial position changes and changes sooner rather than later. And the reality is, you know, we'll be living with restrictions for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, you know, the vaccine offers some hope for, for next year, um, but it'll be much later in the year. And so for those that do have you know six plus months reserves, you know, they're going through them and are really not. And you know, in lots of cases when maybe Sarah can touch better on this, um, you know, those reserves set up or were built for Pacific um, services that a, a charity was hoping to invest in, um, which now is a being utilised for, um, for for overhead costs. Yeah, just to pick up on that, Nora, um, I mean, we have felt the reserves because we've worked really, really hard to create this offer for um, future services we know coming down the line. Um, we are leading and pioneering research around telemedicine in the world, and we're trying to develop that support that for paediatric cardiology. That is an area which um, has transformed some of the patient care over COVID-19 in terms of um, telemedicine and um, virtual correspondence with patients in the hospital. So that is being adapted across um, other services, other health services, and has originated with paediatric cardiology and with our support. Um, and then also we have reserves in New Children's Hospital is um, online. And you know we know that we, uh, we've been in discussions with the management that um, we're going to be asked to support um, the paediatric cardiology unit within that. We um, funded the Open Heart Centre um, to make that a family and patient um, friendly environment and much easier to stress all waiting long time on appointments um, and also the various examinations that children have to go um, go under whenever you're going through that. And that's the same as other children's charity to work with the hospital. We know that we are going to be asked for to support the um, the new children's hospital as well, and that's what we have reserves for. 
we don't have reserves just sitting there and um, nothing doing around. Um, you know, they're all for a purpose and they're all things that the charities work to in terms of trying to plan for the future and to be sustainable and to be in a position to support projects whenever they arise. So it is just incredibly frustrating from our perspective that that is um, being used against us whenever we're constantly being told as a third sector to be more sustainable, to have good governance and also, yep. you know, as I've shown today, our income and our deficit this year is going to be enormous. And the practical impact of that is services um, for children, young people and families. And talking about redundancies, we're a tiny team. Um, if I am forced to make redundancies, we are losing services and that's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, thanks, Mara. And just finally, Chair, I know we have a, a, list, a list of letters to write there. We just propose that, however, that when we're writing to the Minister, uh, requesting, which I presume we will be, the, the earlier opening uh, of this fund, that we also uh, you know, ask or explore possibilities around flexibilities around spend, given uh, how, how close we are to the end of the financial year. So if you think back to the start of the pandemic, which was actually the la during the last financial year, believe it or not, there, there were flexibilities, there was flexibility afforded to the community and voluntary sector yeah. around funding that, that they had had to have spent by the end of March. But, but, but uh, I think a solution was, was able to be found there. And it's just if there's any possibility uh, that we, we can be creative around this, just to get the biggest bang for our buck and, and, and ensure that charities are able to make the best of the money that they do get. And hopefully they also all, all do get uh, this much needed support. Okay, thanks, Mark. Absolutely spot on. Um, I've nobody else wants to come in. Let Robin, you want to come back? Yeah, yeah it's just a simple uh, question, Chair. Maybe a bit more of uh, clarity from uh, Barry uh, and indeed uh, from, from Sarah. Barry, am I right in what uh, I think I heard you say that you read the criteria that was outlined and having read the criteria, you decided that uh, it wasn't worthwhile making an application because you felt you weren't meeting the criteria? Exactly. We, we just thought saw no purpose in us wasting time on the application and strictly said, you know, I can't remember the exact words, but it was if you have reserves of X, Y, and Z, or if, if you're not at risk of imminent closure, you know, you're not eligible. So we read that and we just didn't put it in. What, what was the point of wasting days of an application that was clearly not going to go through? Yeah. Uh, and in the case of uh, Sarah, uh, you actually made, am I right, sir? You made an application and were turned down? No, sorry, we were in the same position as Barry. It was actually, I'm just back from maternity leave, so it was uh, my intern who um, actually took advice, I think, to spoke to people within the department as well, just to see, you know, whether, what the, what, I suppose, how um, the criteria was set up and whether there was really value in applying for it, and again, because of our reserves, um, the feedback was no. Um, so again, in the same position as Barry, um, you're under a lot of pressure and time is very valuable and your small teams working in this COVID-19 environment, so the decision was made that um, the criteria wasn't, wasn't fit for us. Of course. Uh, you may have been able to hear a discussion before we came to you this morning, but we have a letter indicating that uh, of, uh, of 645 applicants, 
Um, well, this game, 501 were eligible, is the word used. Eligible charities were supported. So 144 charities uh, did not receive support under the scheme. Would you be aware of uh, any of those charities who were turned down? I'm, I'm Probably a non-fair, maybe a non-fair question. Yeah, I, I am aware of, of the number that did apply and weren't successful. Um, and to be honest, they, they, they submitted the application to one that they may be turned down because of the strict criteria. Um, you know, um, I suppose to be fair to the department, they've responded to what they felt was suitable at that time. We now know that the, the criteria needs to be much broader to support a wide range of charities and to reflect their particular circumstances. So for those that had applied and weren't successful, of course they were disappointed and frustrated um, but because the criteria was so strict. Um, um, from, what I, from what I recall, it was it was reserves that knocked them out. So, okay, thank you, Chair. Thank you for the group coming to see us. Okay, thanks, Robin. Okay, I think that's everything. Sorry, Kelly, you wanted to come back as well, didn't you? I was you? just going to add on, Chair, if we could, if we're writing to the department, as Mark has suggested, um, could we add in that uh, for this round of funding that's coming out, that they review the criteria with a, an aim to removing the reserve balance? Because at the end of the day, Sarah and charities like hers have spent what reserve they can. Um, there is no more reserves left. Um, so for um, the department to keep on using reserves as a, as an ex a way to exclude is no re longer relevant. Absolutely. So, oh. Chair, just before, uh, maybe I could, could ask, uh, would it be in order, Chair, for the representatives to actually write to you indicating what they think would be appropriate criteria given the circumstances. Would, would that be in order, Chair? Yeah, I think that would be useful if you're in agreement with that. It would help it would help it would help us in our in our um, our questioning and our you know and, and what we, we think is appropriate. Um, you're the best people to answer that question, not us. Yeah, are you happy enough with that, Nora? Sorry, I, I, I messed up then. Robin asking for our feedback on what the criteria should include. Yeah, what it should be because you you know your members, you know them best, you know what what they absolutely need. So I think that's a good point that Robin made. Um, we don't know what that is. No, only you know that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you can feed that back to the committee, Nora, that would be great. Yeah, sure. I I would hope at this stage, yes, I, I, I certainly will. Um, and I do have had you know conversations with with the department that I know they have with the That's no problem, uh, Nora. And just Robin has reminded me here that criteria question that we have asked of you. That's probably uh, would be a matter of urgency to get that through sooner rather than later. Um, 
uh, we will be getting um, various briefings from the department and the minister in the next few weeks ahead. So it would be handy to have that information um, so that we can forward it on as well. Um, I think that everybody has said what they needed to say. Um, can I thank you very much? We have a list of my long. I have a few things written down here, so I'm just going to rhyme them off and then members or yourselves can jump in if I've missed something. Um, the first thing is to do with the contracts and the full cost recovery. I think we need to write to all departments on that because I know that all departments have a responsibility there. Um, then the Chancellor of, of the Exchequer around the special exemption with the furlough. And then I also have the Charity Commission because that was horrifying that someone's waiting seven years. I also have then the Economy and the Finance Ministers to do with the vouchers, if they can clarify that as well. And then, um, yes, writing to the Minister to ask about opening the fund earlier and being a bit more flexible within that fund as well. Okay, members, if I've forgotten one, would you tell me now? I was, okay. going, to, I was going to ask if we can write to the department um, to ask what's happening with the Concordat Agreement, because that is the executive signed agreement with the charity sector. Okay. And if full cost recovery is in that then, then all departments should be working to that. Okay. And also, um, just there when, no when Nora mentioned it, Dormant accounts, is that going to be a mutually exclusive fund that then um, may knock people out of this money that's coming out? Um, no, no, no. Big, big Okay, everybody, happy enough there. If I have forgotten anything, I'm sure the members will get in contact with the clerk anyway, just to remind them. Um, so can I again thank you, Nora, Sarah and Barry. It was really good to see you again. Sorry it's under these circumstances and not under brighter circumstances, but um, good to see you and good to have you brief the committee. So thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. okay, members, we're just going to take a quick break before we have our first raise session so i'm really looking forward to that are members okay then from what was suggested there in the end of that meeting before i close that part yeah, yeah. all clapping yeah. okay all right i'll just take a quick break members <coughs> okay members okay members we'll move on then to agenda item six which is a briefing by raise on the licensing bill and registration of clubs amendment bill our, um, so members will find three separate research papers in this starting at page 43 and then can I offer a very warm welcome to the meeting and um, we have Eleanor Murphy, uh, Ray Russell and Aidan Stennett all from Assembly Research. So um, Eleanor I think you're going to brief us first then we'll have Ray and then Aidan after that we'll do it we'll let all three briefings I think members if they're happy with that we'll go ahead with the three briefings and then we'll do questions after that so Eleanor do you want to go ahead and start for us please yes thank you sir good morning good morning members uh, can you see my Touch upon some of the available data on the impact of COVID-19 on the sector. 
And obviously, liquor license and legislation has a very important public health element. So, Ray's going to take you through some of the existing statistical evidence on alcohol use in Northern Ireland. So, the purpose of my presentation is to provide you with some contextual information on the causes of the bill. But now the Department of Fit, Departmental Officials have already uh, raised the committee on what those clauses are. So, rather than just go through those again, I thought it might be helpful if we look at what happens in other jurisdictions and also identify some of the issues that the committee might want to start to consider. So I'm only going to go through about five of those clauses because if I start to go through them all, we're here till midnight. So um, I can come back and brief the committee again if it finds this useful on some of the, the remaining clauses of the bill. So this is what's your starter for 10, Sharon. Sure. <laughs> so <laughs> move on to clause uh, one the removal of restrictions in Eastern. So, clause one of the bill proposes to remove all restrictions that currently apply over the Eastern period for both on and off sales, and this will apply to both licensed premises and registered clubs. This is considerably more generous than the 2016 bill, as introduced as this only proposed to remove the restrictions in relation to Thursday before Easter Sunday only. So what happens in other jurisdictions? Well, up until a few years ago, the Republic of Ireland was the only jurisdiction that had restrictions on opening hours at Easter. So licensed premises were banned from opening on Good Friday. But you may already be aware that this ban has since been removed. Uh, the lifting of the restrictions was contained within a private member's bill, which was subsequently enacted down south in January 2018. There are no similar restrictions on permitted opening hours in Easter in England, Wales and Scotland, but as we'll cover in the next few slides, they have a very different licensing regime and licensing infrastructure uh, in comparison to Northern Ireland. So, just some issues that you might want to consider. So, obviously, the committee will be very interested in what this impact, the impact of the clause will actually be. So you might want to ask the department whether it's carried out for commission the any analysis on the removal of restrictions in terms of benefits to the hospitality industry and to tourism and to the economy in general. Um, I should point out that hospitality also have carried out some analysis and estimated that in 2016 approximately £16 million in revenue was lost due to restrictions. So you may want to consider exploring with them how they derive that figure and whether they have any updated figures that you could consider. So you may wish to um, explore with stakeholders the extent to which the proposals within Clause 1 will assist in addressing some of the financial challenges the sector has faced uh, due to COVID-19. And lastly, the issue of Easter opening is obviously a very sensitive issue and a sensitive balance has to be struck between promoting tourism and hospitality while at the same time respecting the views and beliefs of faith-based groups and individuals as no doubt the committee will be hearing from some of the churches on that issue. So uh, if we turn to clause two, so clause two of the bill proposes to allow certain licensed premises an additional one hour late opening. That is 2 a.m. on weekdays, 1 a.m. on Sundays, and a maximum of 104 occasions in any year. So clause five also uh, is relevant because it proposes to increase drinking of time by 30 minutes. So the latest certain licensed premises may be open to is 3 a.m. with weekdays uh, and 2 a.m. on Sundays. So this is uh, the previous 2016 bill 
Uh, also allowed for the one additional one hour opening, but only for a maximum of 12 occasions in any year. So the 2020 bill is considerably more generous in that regard. So what happens in other jurisdictions? So in the Republic of Ireland, pubs and clubs can apply to the courts for something called a special exemption order, which allows licensed premises to open from 2.30am plus 30 minutes drinking up time. So the bill will bring Northern Ireland into line with the maximum extended opening hours in the Republic of Ireland. However, special exemption orders in the South are a bit of a contentious issue. In order to obtain the licence, premises need to apply to the courts in a few weeks, which also involves solicitors and quite costly uh, fees, which is said to be particularly difficult for smaller premises to afford. So many in the licensing trade down south would like to see a reform of extended hours to either a yearly special exemption order, and some have called for the government to carry out a more fundamental review of the issue. Uh, and the government did indicate that we would carry out a consultation and I'm still trying to find where exactly that is at the moment. So there are no nationally uh, set permitted opening hours in England, Wales or Scotland. Licensing in these jurisdictions is devolved to the local authority level, so licensing decisions are not made by the courts or the police, although the police have, can have fairly considerable input into decision making. Licensing authorities in England, Wales and licensing boards in Scotland their membership consists of local councils and they make decisions on licensing issues including permitted opening hours. Could, could really simply because it is a complex system and um, licensing premises themselves tend to determine what hours they wish to open and this must be contained in an operating plan or operating schedule. The local licensing authority for that area will consider the plan in the context of its own individual local circumstances such as how many bars and premises are already operating in that area, whether there's been incidents of antisocial behaviour. So one interesting thing you might want to note um, is the licensing infrastructure in other jurisdictions. In Scotland, local licensing boards are supported by something called local licensing forums. Each forum is a multidisciplinary body with membership comprising of the chief constables for the area, health trusts, social workers, young people, residents and licensees themselves. And the function of this forum is to advise and share intelligence with local licensing boards. So each licensing board also has a licensing standards officer or officers depending on the size of the board area, whose role is to advise the board and licensed premises themselves in issues such as compliance with legislation, they can also provide discrete resolution and have the power to inspect premises. So the reason why I mentioned that is you may wish to consider having a closer look at our own regulatory infrastructure framework and whether it is sufficiently robust to make extended opening hours work smoothly. So I'm the Belfast City Councillor, I've done a lot of work in the managing the nighttime economy. As some other local councillors, you might want to look at examples of best practice and how that can be rolled out across Northern Ireland. So, some uh, issues you might want to consider is what economic benefits does this have for licensed premises, again for tourism and the wider economy, what impact will it have on policing and health services, and what impact it will have on crime and alcohol consumption. So you might want to consider asking the department if they've done any research or analysis on this issue as part of the policy formulation process and whether they're willing to share that with the committee. The bill's um, explanatory, finance and explanatory memorandum does explain that the department didn't carry out a regulatory impact assessment or 
uh, rural needs assessment. And there's also very little information currently in the expansion memorandum to do with the costings of how much it's going to cost police. There's indications that it could impact on shift patterns. So the committee might want to follow up on that and see what data and economic data can get that it can be provided with. So an interesting development you might want to keep an eye on is the recent announcement by the University of Stirling. They're about to embark on a three-year £1.1 million study on the impact of extended opening hours in Scotland, because some clubs in Scotland are now allowed to open to in, in Edinburgh and Glasgow allowed to open to 3 and 4 a.m. and they're really going to be uh, exploring what impact that has on the local nighttime economy, but also what impact it's having on health service, ambulance callouts, and so that the research will be useful to policymakers throughout the UK. So extended um, drinking on times, previously mentioned, the plan is, the proposal is to extend it from 30 minutes to 60 minutes. So in the Republic of Ireland, it's still 30 minutes. In Scotland, it's 15 minutes, but some licensing boards have made the decision to extend it to 30 minutes. The Lincoln Wales, there's no stipulation guidance for drinking up period at all, but the Home Office does provide guidance on dispersal. So that's like turning music down, changing the musical style, or providing food and non-alcoholic drinks. Some issues you might want to consider. The department may have conducted more in-depth research on the issue of drinking up time dispersal. For example, examining drinking up time in other jurisdictions and how effective it is in terms of gradual dispersal and the impact that it has on alcohol consumption. You may wish to check that out anything that has been produced and whether they're willing to share it with you. <clears throat> you might want to ask how this is being, going to be ruled out. Um, will it be piloted first or is it just going to be ruled out province-wide? So it's really to do with the timetable on this and the, the ability of the PSNA and their support services to be able to cope with that. Um, and then the question perhaps you want to consider will stop any of drinks become an issue and if that is how do the licensing trade or the department of any solutions as to how this could be prevented so the last clause i'll cover is um nature events so obviously northern Ireland has attracted some fantastic international events in recent years but the department highlighted that organizers found the licensing laws were really restrictive and therefore the department proposed to allow to the bill proposes to allow the department to designate an event as a major event and then specify the permitted hours for that event which might be outside current permitted, uh, permitted opening hours. Um, there's much more to this clause than what's on the screen. There's much more detail in the paper. So this is very much part of the licensing regime in other jurisdictions and has been for a considerable period of time. In Scotland, uh, license Legislation permits the licensing board to make a determination to grant extensions to licensing hours for events of local and national significance. And also, similar to the Northern Ireland Bill's proposals, this can apply to the whole of the licensing board area, to a small area within the licensing board area, or just certain types of premises. So there's a little bit of a difference in Scotland in terms of how it treats recurrent events. So things like the Edinburgh Finland Fringe Festival and other recurrent events like that, it really expects that licensing, uh, licensees will include their uh, plans for permitted or permitted opening hours within their operating schedule. 
if a one-off event sort of occurs, there is some flexibility within the scheme that um, licensees can buy for their, their license to be varied, and this can be sped up in certain circumstances. So in England, Wales, Secretary of State can under the Licensing Act make a licensing hours order, uh, and they did so quite recently to celebrate the marriages of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, that's just an example, and also never thought I'd mention Meghan Markle in a research paper. <laughs> but this extension was to 1am and really just benefited smaller pubs with early closing times. Some issues you might want to consider. Um, the bill states the department may make an order if it considers that an event is to take place in North Ireland, which will attract significant interest. I hope I've interpreted that correctly and checked with the department. Um, if so, what happens if the event is, is significant to Northern Ireland and takes place outside Northern Ireland, such as local success in sporting events, international sporting events, and cross border uh, sporting events? In England and Wales, um, it's also pretty much standard that a public consultation is published by the Secretary of State. Um, and an impact assessment is published as well. So you might want to ask, does the department intend to do the same uh, in terms of the publishing a consultation and an impact assessment? And obviously this may not be necessary for all events. So the bill also provides that the department must consult such persons as considers appropriate in determining whether a major event order should be made. In terms of consultees, you might want to consider should there be mandatory consultants, such as the licensed premises in the area, PSNI, Health Trust, local councils, tourism, and I. And also you might want to consider what happens if a major disagreement um, takes place between the department and perhaps another department or a key stakeholder and how that would be resolved. So that's basically that in a nutshell. Thanks, <laughs> I've ran through that at some speed, but I'm happy to come back and um, chat to the committee and do you think that would be useful. Eleanor, I would say that you will be back here many times with the committee, so don't kid yourself there. We'd be glad to have you back. Um, I'm not going to. I'm going to then move over to Ray and ask Ray. Then would he give us um, his briefing as well? Sure. Um, thank you for inviting me this morning. Um, in my brief presentation, rather than go through every page of it. Um, I'll instead pull out some key statistics which um, you should be able to follow. Um, the presentation will follow the same sequence as, as, as it's in my paper. I will actually look at two aspects of alcohol consumption, namely alcohol and health, and alcohol and crime, okay? First of all, um, alcohol and health. I should really begin by <clears throat> making the point that um, <clears throat> any information and statistics on adult Drinking patterns here has been substantially reduced since around 2014. Before then, the Department of Health 
produced a, a publication called Allot Drinking Patterns every three to five years, but this was discontinued in 2014. It normally contained around 35 pages of data and text, while the current annual health survey contains less than half a page of statistics on alcohol. So there is a large gap there. Okay, alcohol consumption. Um, over three quarters of adults, actually almost four out of five, 79% per cent here, drink alcohol. Now there are um, male and female patterns of consumption differ significantly. While almost one in five male drinkers um, drink on three or more days every week, um, that falls to one in ten female drinkers. Um, overall, the proportion of adults who drink in Northern Ireland is broadly comparable to the other UK nations. Around one in five adults in the UK are teetotal, around 20%, and that's for all four UK nations. Okay, um, I'll look now a little bit at his, his story. Trends in alcohol consumption. In the UK as a whole, there was a significant rise in alcohol consumption after the end of the Second World War. From around 
less and licensed premises. Now, since around 2005, the overall um, amount of alcohol in the UK, including Northern Ireland, um, has begun to fall. Um, this trend is especially pronounced in younger drinkers. I'll give you an example of, of that. Last evening I was out for a walk in the local area and I, there is a nice cream parlour situated right beside and off a license. As I was walking past, I, I noticed that there was a large queue around the block um, to go in to the ice cream parlour, mostly young people, whereas the off-license was empty, which was interesting, I thought. Anyway, so, um, also this uh, uh, fall in alcohol consumption among the young also applies to children, actually, as, for example, in the year 2000, over half of children aged between 11 and 16 reported um, ever having had a drink. By 2016, this proportion had fallen to under a third, so it's falling overall in the age group 16 to 64 actually. However, it is rising in older age groups. Those groups who are, sorry, people aged um, 65 and over, there is an upward trend in alcohol consumption. Also with women, not only men actually, it's both men and women. One of the factors I suspect in that is that the baby boomers who began to drink in the 1970s when they were perhaps in their late teens, early 20s, they are now reaching retirement age. So that cohort has just followed on really uh, drinking from what they were doing when they were younger. So that's one aspect. The next um, item I look at is alcohol-related harm. Now, a, a major study which was commissioned in 2018 by the, by the Public Health Agency England found that they looked at literally hundreds of research um, articles from academic institutions and they um, found that alcohol has been identified as a 
causal factor and over 200 health conditions. This includes various types of cancer, heart complaints, brain damage, fetal alcohol, sedum, etc., and strokes. Now, the harm caused by alcohol is largely dose dependent, i.e., the more you drink, the more harm it will cause you. Now, um, alcohol uh, counts for around 2% of all registered deaths in Northern Ireland, typically around 300 per year. So that's uh, 2% of all deaths. Now, however, death rates in the most deprived areas of Northern Ireland are three times higher than in the least deprived. And in 2018, Northern Ireland had the second highest alcohol mortality of the four UK nations after Scotland, with England being the lowest. The Northern Ireland rate has actually been rising steadily since 2013. I should add that about 80% of alcohol-related deaths are linked to cirrhosis of the liver. That is, um, that can actually take decades to manifest and you can be completely symptom-free for many years until it hits you. So people who are dying from alcohol at this point, the damage may have uh, began 40 years ago or perhaps less than that. About um, hospital admissions, they have been climbing um, since uh, between 2008 and 2013, but have since fallen back uh, to 28 levels. Sorry, I did two, yeah, 20, zero I should say. There are typically around 13,000 alcohol admissions here. Unfortunately, it's not possible to make any direct comparisons between Northern Ireland and, say, the Republic of Ireland or the other three UK nations, because all four of them use a different criteria for recording hospital admissions. So it's not really, uh, uh, they aren't uh, directly comparable. Now, in 19, sorry, in 2014, it was estimated 
that alcohol misuse um, costs around 900 million per annum. These costs um, of alcohol abuse include health and social care, police and fire service, absenteeism from work and premature mortality. Um, finally, I'll look here um, just a, a couple of statistics on alcohol and crime. Now, typically around one in five or twenty thousand of all crimes in Northern Ireland are linked to alcohol. So that's one in five, about twenty thousand. Now, um, violence with or without injury accounts for around 70% or 3 out of 4 of all alcohol-motivated crime. And that's really um, at the end of my short uh, presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Ray, and we'll have a few questions for you as well on some of those facts and figures and the, and the lack of, suppose, of data that we have in Northern Ireland as well. So thanks, Ray. Um, can I move on then to Aidan? Yes, thank you, Chair. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, can indeed. Go ahead. Great. Uh, so I'm still on the screen. Uh... Okay, we can see it. Up? Yep. That's brilliant. Okay. Um, thanks for, for inviting me to speak. Um, I'm just going to look at the, um, the economic impacts of the hospitality, hospitality sector in Northern Ireland, um, just to add to the presentations you've already heard. So, uh, I'm going to three things uh, relatively quickly. Um, how I'm defining the hospitality sector, um, the economic impact of that sector, and how that sector has been um, affected. Um, uh, by COVID-19 restrictions, or what we know so far about how, this, how it's been affected. So, throughout the, the paper that you have today and this presentation, um, I'm using the definition of the hospitality sector, which is based on standard industrialized industrial classifications. So this is essentially all those businesses that uh, fall into the accommodation and food sector, plus um, convention and trade show organizers. Um, so this is much broader than the licensing uh, trade, but the licensing trade is captured in that. So um, licensed restaurants are found within the um, restaurants and mobile food activities uh, subsector, and licensed uh, public houses and uh, clubs are found in the serving activity centre. Um, so moving on to the, the economic impact of the hospitality sector, there's an infographic on page uh, 200 of your packs provides a, a summary of, of the key, um, key headline figures. Um, this is largely based on a, a, a paper prepared for Hospitality Ulster by the consultancy group BDO and uh, that was published in May of this year. Um, that in turn was based on an earlier paper um, by Oxford Economics um, from 2015 and I've supplemented that with some data from uh, ONS and ISRA. So just to drill down into some of those figures. Um, the hospitality sector uh, in 2007 uh, estimated to produce um, around 4% um, of the total GDP in the UK. 
and that's a total contribution. Um, put on the third perspective, the direct impact of our agriculture sector is around two percent of uh, uh, GPA on the other end of the scale. Uh, direct impact of our manufacturing sector is around fifteen uh, percent. Um, so the overall impact of the hospitality sector in terms of jobs is about eight point seven percent of Northern Ireland's jobs in two thousand and seventeen. And it uh, generated, um, the Senate generated around um, 90, 90 million uh, pounds in, in tax revenue in 2013. And this is, this figure is a bit outdated, but it's the most recent that I can locate. Um, just to say that um, between 2013 and certainly 2017, the, the sector has experienced growth, so you'd expect the, um, the tax revenue to, to grow accordingly along with that. Um, so those figures show the overall impact of the hospitality sector, and that's made up of what are called direct, indirect, and induced impacts. Um, to give you a practical example of that, um, if you consider a restaurant, um, a restaurant will uh, generate a profit, and a lot of that through the pay wages, these are direct impacts. Um, the, the restaurant will also purchase uh, goods and services from suppliers, who will in turn employ um, staff, uh, those are the indirect impacts, or some of the indirect impacts. And um, the staff employed by the restaurants and by their suppliers will, uh, uh, will spend their wages in the broader economy on consumer products. And this is what we mean when we're talking about um, induced impacts. So this figure this, this looks at the direct, indirect, and induced impacts uh, of uh, the sector uh, in gross value added employment and wages. And so the gross value added, for example, the overall contribution is about 1.6 billion. And the majority of that 56% um, came from direct impacts, but there are significant indirect and induced impacts. And why this is significant is that when we're considering um, changes to the hospitality sector, not only is it worth considering the the direct impact on that sector, but how that will affect um, their suppliers and also the broader economy. So this set of figures here, uh, it looks at um, just the direct impact of the sector, but it looks at it by um, broad subsectors. So it's it, 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 it five figures for turnover, employment, GBA, and wages. Just to say about this, you can see clearly that uh, across all four measures, restaurants are the biggest driver, followed by hotels, Followed by public houses, and there are smaller but significant contributions from the events management sector. <coughs> Moving on to um, what we know so far about the impact of COVID 19 restrictions on the, on the sector, um, the hospital, all the Ulster paper I mentioned, uh, was published in May, projected that between 177 to 440 licensed premises could fail due to lockdown restrictions introduced in March. Um, a level of effect of the loss of between um, around nine and a half thousand to fifteen and a half thousand um, jobs. But it's important to note that this focuses on um, just the license uh, premises. It doesn't include spillover effects, and that's that's what I was referring to in the previous slide about how interlinked the economy is. Um, so we have to consider um, what would these business closures mean for suppliers to that business, and what would these business closures mean to the, the, the broader economy. Um, this next figure looks uh, at 
Output of the service sector throughout January uh, 2019 and uh, 2020, it's UK data, uh, but it does provide an indication of broader measures. So, if we can see that um, up until um, approximately March of, of this year, the, um, the output uh, of the sector was, was relatively stable. And then following the introduction of restrictions, uh, the, the lockdown in March, you can see that the service sector, which is the, um, the dark uh, black line, it, it experienced actually a decline. At its lowest point, it was 23% below baseline. Now, compare that to the accommodation and food sector, which is where licensed premises are located, this sector saw a decline of 91% below its baseline in, in uh, April. Of 2020, this was the largest decline um, across the whole services sector. Now, the sector has uh, shown its signs of recovery. Um, during the summer months, it rose uh, again, um, but remained 9.5% below its baseline. Um, it's important to recognise as well that this data doesn't uh, capture um, the impact of, uh, of the more recent um, restrictions that we've been under since um, October. The next set of figures looks quickly at the uh, uptake of the furlough scheme in Northern Ireland, and this is data that's um, uh, from the, the end of July 2020. So you can see that from the first um, graphic that um, the, the proportion of eligible employees uh, partaking in the furlough scheme was highest in the accommodation and food sector of all the different sectors in Northern Ireland, 81% of eligible in employees um, took uh, or took the scheme. This figure uh, compares uptake of, of the scheme in the accommodation food sector across um, UK regions. Um, and we can see that Northern Ireland had the highest uptake of all UK regions uh, uh, in July of 2020. And this is despite um, the overall uptake of the scheme across the, the, the economy being um, um, lower than, than the number of regions. So my final uh, slide, Chair, uh, looks uh, uses um, it, it's this really novel data source. It's, it uses Google uh, Map data to show changes in visits to um, retail and recreation and premises throughout 2020 uh, across all Northern Ireland local government districts. Um, the category retail and uh, recreation um, includes. Uh, it includes licensed premises. It also includes what were are commonly referred to as non-essential retail. Um, it doesn't include uh, groceries uh, or pharmacies, which you can find in the South category. So this isn't focused entirely on the, the, the licensed trade sector or the hospitality sector, but it does provide a good proxy for that. And it also gives us almost real-time um, uh, information about uh, changes to footfall in those sectors. So we can see that right across Northern Ireland, uh, each local government district uh, followed uh, a similar pattern. In fact, at the lowest point, which was the 12th of uh, April in 2020, um, the, the decline in, in footfall at the retail recreation premises was um, 90% below the baseline. Um, uh, there were, again, it shows some recovery uh, in line with these restrictions, especially with the summer months. This can be most noticeable in places like Causeway Coast and the Glens and Mary and Mary Moyne and Dye. But we can also see that uh, there's a we'll fall in the road baseline in more recent months. 
again, this data does not include the impact of restrictions that we've been under since uh, the 16th of October, but we would expect, um, due to the, the, given those restrictions, that we will see similar replies in the football. So I'm going to stop there, Chair. Thank you for the that's great, Aidan, and thank you to you also for um, that comprehensive brief as well. And thank, thank you to all three of them. I, I know going forward, um, your research that you've done um, will be invaluable to this committee um, as we progress through the bill. Um, I'll just then start off with a couple of questions for each of you. Um, so I'll start off then with uh, you, Eleanor. Um, it's just then... Um, you, I'm actually going to ask you questions about stuff you didn't speak about. Um, <laughs> you'd be surprised to hear. Um, the first one is to do with, um, we know we've been lobbied by our local producers here in Northern Ireland. We understand the reasons why we have, um, and they're not altogether happy with what they see in, in the face of the bill at the moment. So it's just to ask you um, around uh, the rest of the UK and Republic of Ireland if you have any information um, on how they how their licenses that works for them over there and how our bill as it sits at the moment how it differs from from them well um at the, at the moment things stand we have the most restrictive um rules in, in terms of the local producers the republic of ireland in 2018 um, moved to relax some of those restrictions and, and to allow the, the local producers to sell um, their products to to the public, but it can only be products that they manufacture on their premises, and that, that if they want to, uh, people want to consume alcohol on the premises, it has to be via a tour, which is quite similar to what the bill proposes. In Scotland and England, in particular, it's more relaxed. But that's because they have a very different licensing regime. So over there, local producers have diversified to um, to have things like tap rooms or re restaurants or to um, amalgamate their product with things like sightseeing and golfing. And you know, it's, it seems to be quite a niche product. Uh, tourism product over there and it's very much promoted by the tourism bodies in Scotland and, and, and in England. Um, but we have very different licensing regime here and things like the surrender principle come into play so um, there's issues around that to consider. Yeah, and I think our licensing um, we have here will has it will cause us problems as we do go through this bill on some of these issues, um, and and I, I, I think that's why probably to some extent we need to steer away maybe from comparisons uh, with other jurisdictions because of our of of our licensing laws. Um, just another thing then was to do with balance. Um, I know it's, many of us have said it in the chamber on the the second stage that we wanted to see the balance. Um, you know, between uh, alcohol misuse and supporting the hospitality and consumers and, and everything else. Um, are, are there any key issues that you would be aware of that do not um, support that sort of balanced approach within the bill as it stands at the moment? We need to think about that more in depth. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to put I you on the spot, Eleanor. Absolutely. We, need to, we need you as a friend. It's a difficult balance for any legislature to balance the public health and also the promotion of the economy. Yeah. Um, I think the, the bill tries to do as much as it can to promote the public um, health aspect, but 
things that the department can achieve within the bill uh, in terms of public health are, are quite limited. I mean, the, this al alcohol consumption and the licensed trade, those issues affects every single department, um, from the Department of the Economy right down to the Department of Infrastructure. Um, so it's a really difficult balancing act. Um, other jurisdictions, it's in the paper, like there's an alcohol, public health alcohol bill uh, act, sorry, in the Republic of Ireland, which goes beyond what the bill or bill um, can achieve uh, in terms of its introducing minimum alcohol prices in the Republic of Ireland and things like um, restrictions on advertising. Um, it goes beyond what our bill, but I think that's probably a separate subject and consultation and they'll probably occur at a later date in Northern Ireland in terms of when we're considering minimum uh, unit pricing. Okay, Eleanor, thank you. As I say, I, I don't want to put any of you on the spot at all and none of us will do this during this because we, we absolutely are so appreciative of the work that all of you have done to help us with the scrutiny of the bill. Um, Ray, if I could just move over to you. Um, and I absolutely agree with you. When you were talking there, it just reminded me of my daughter is 30 and her and her two school friends meet regularly in the evening and they go for a cup of coffee or they go uh, to a half, the Rinka and Island McGee, other ice cream shops are available, but that's that's <laughs> kind of, that would be their um, meet up where they would go and that they enjoy that more than, you know, going out somewhere for, for a drink. So I get, when you said it, I kind of went, yeah, absolutely, you're right. Um, I, I see that with my own my own children. Um, I just wanted to ask you then around, I, you know, I'd said it before, I've sat in the health committee for a long time, and there was always a major problem in Northern Ireland when it came to data gathering. Um, we're not very good at gathering, gathering all that data. And I mean, I, 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 sometimes we forget about all of those hidden consequences of alcohol or those other, other not necessarily hidden, but other consequences of alcohol, you know, that, that you mentioned, and also epilepsy and, and Korsakoff's dementia, you know, all of those various things. And I know that you'd said there are 2% of all registered deaths in NI are down to alcohol. I would say it's probably an awful lot, more, a lot, an awful lot higher than that because of, of how deaths are recorded even in Northern Ireland um, and how we record someone's death is not always, um, it's not always the primary cause that is, that is recorded. Um, but it's just to ask you then about those sort of the concerns you've raised about the gaps in sort of information and data um, do you think that causes any issues with our scrutiny of the bill going forward? A good question, and I certainly give a bit of background on about. I was referring to the survey. It's, it was called the adult drinking patterns survey, and it was. Um, published by the, the, the Department of Health every uh, three to five years. The last public uh, publication was in 2014. Now, it was based on a sample of around 2,000 respondents, and it looked at every aspect of alcohol consumption, you know, um, and for example, and even went into alcohol intake in that many of the respondents were asked 
to keep alcohol diaries in which they actually recorded <coughs> their daily and weekly consumption. So you actually had how much alcohol was being consumed by the population. That information is no longer available to us. Um, what you have instead is a an annual health survey which looks at a large range of health indicators and alcohol is only one of them. So you're getting a very small amount of information compared to what you what you once thought. However, I should add now the OAS, the Office for National Statistics, they used to do a survey which was very similar to our own NISRA Department of Health one. However, they have also discontinued um, the publication of this survey from 2018, I think. So we are the only a UK a nation who has done that. I suspect the reasons are, I suppose, are linked to austerity in that, um, like every other department over the past, what, 10 years, the Department of Health and NISRA have had um, staff cutbacks, so they've had to prioritize their work. In answer to your question, whether it will impact on the committee's deliberations, I'm not certain that it will have a major impact, but it would certainly have been useful to have had more information on the actual um, amounts which people are consuming something we no longer have. And I suppose just to say as well, Ray, I mean, any any survey, but especially an annual health survey, is only as good as the recipients and their honesty. Um, and we Absolutely. know yeah, with, with many when it comes to health questions, people um, are not always honest, on, especially on consumption of alcohol or how many cigarettes they smoke and things like that. Sure. So that, rely on that. You just raised with Ray whether or not we know the type of alcohol uh, whether or not there's variation between beer and... Oh, do you go ahead and ask, Ray? That, sorry, uh, Robin just wants to come in on a, a, a point here. Go ahead, Robin. Yes, sorry, Ray. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And now, um, that is also one of the items which we have lost in the 20... Well, in the old drinking patterns survey are they actually looked at the types of alcohol are consumed, whether it was wine, spirits, beers, alcohol, pops, all of those were listed, but we no longer have that information, unfortunately, yeah.
that's one of the items we lost when the survey ended. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm just looking through it here at the moment. Yeah, I can see, yeah, nothing. Henry, I do, just one final question I have for you. We know that we're likely to receive evidence from um, various health professionals or health bodies in relation to the misuse of alcohol. And we know that, I think you mentioned in your paper, there's a relatively small budget in Northern Ireland for tackling alcohol, alcohol problems from the Department of Health. Um, just a, again, a, a, how do we compare the other jurisdictions when it comes to the amount of money that, that is set aside um, to, to tackle, tackle um, either alcohol-related ill health or alcohol abuse? Um, unfortunately, I don't have that information to add, but I, I'll be happy to look that up for you. No, that would be great. It's just that you know we will get we will get that or we will be uh, have evidence sessions, or hopefully they'll respond to our call for evidence. Um, but it's just a case of you know they really have to be stepping up to the mark as well. It can't all be left to Department of Communities to sort these issues out. You know, no, thank you very much, Ray, for that. Kelly, did you want a supplementary on that? No, no, no. No, you'll come in later. Okay, and just then, Aidan, finally for you and the economic impacts um, and the economic benefits, and I know I can see that. I, I was looking at your graph earlier and I saw Causeway, Causeway Coast and Glens and uh, more, uh, nearly more, more than down, and I thought, my goodness, that was the place to be in the summer, or maybe not with COVID. Um, I just thought, I wonder, did they, the, the COVID figures replicate? any of your graphs as well but that's for another committee to decide on that one so it is but it's just weighing up that against i suppose the, the public health costs and the policing costs um uh, whether or not that's something that we should be exploring as well um going through this bill i, I think so chair i'm really really for every end hospital admission, every time the patient comes out, um, there's a cost to the public first uh, for that, and then uh, absenteeism for uh, uh, more cost businesses, uh, and then we've got also the cost of um, premature deaths. So that's estimated to be uh, 900 million. Um, uh, but on just a very black and white, the, the estimate of 900 million, you can balance that against. Um, um, uh, 1.6 uh, billion uh, GDA contribution, and obviously, you're more in the, the profit side of the debt. I think we should be talking about profit and loss more than we're talking about people's um, health. Um, one thing I go, I think the 900 million figure is from 2014 as well. And as I already mentioned, there has been declines in, um, in hospital emissions. So, it'll be interesting to see if they could possibly get a more up, up to date figure uh, on that. Um, Again, I don't know if the, 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 the data is still available uh, or is it collected that way, but um, there is an interesting audit office um, report looking at the cost of alcohol and substances that, um, uh, and I'll, uh, that I can share with the, with the committee back if you find that useful. Yeah, that would be useful. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not set, setting out there to say that, um, that these are, one should be balanced off against the other. Absolutely not, because I think people 
um, in general need to take responsibility. It's not always government's responsibility when uh, you know people need to take responsibility for their own alcohol consumption and their own health. So that's not my intention in that line of question either. Just to say that. Um, that's uh, that. That's me kind of washed up at the minute. Um, I maybe come back in if I need to. But I have Alex and I have Kelly. I have Sinead and I have Mark. So Alex. Thank you, Chair. Um, just from the outset. Just because of my line of questioning doesn't mean I've got one way of thinking or another. Um, I'd like to think I'm quite open-minded, and I certainly don't have a problem with people drinking or going to the pub, and I have been to the pub, so I'm declaring an interest. <laughs> um, just some of my questioning, obviously, is going to be on health stuff and, and a few other wee bits and pieces. Is there any evidence that if we allowed pubs to close an hour later, that it staggers people coming out? in a, a more better and orderly way for the place and everybody to cope? Um, or is there any evidence that everybody would just pile out a, a, an hour later? Is, is there anything on that? Um, that's my first question, so I don't mind who answers that. Um, also, my, my, my other question, it's good to know that people aren't attending maybe a hospital as much. It's becoming less with drinking alcohol. But at the same time, deaths have increased as well. Um, and there is still 13,000 people coming to hospital a year, although those figures may not be correct. Um, what's to say that if, if we open an extra hour and, and we relax the restrictions for Easter, that that won't get worse over time? Um, is, is there any help you can give us to to sort of figure that out in any way that you've already said and that's my two main questions really yeah i'm happy to try to cover that one we only look in a very preliminary way at some of the evidence let's look at a comprehensive way it's quite an intensive um process so i've included in the paper some examples of um, research that we've done, and they're, they're very conflicting in terms of what impact extended opening hours have on things like crime or uh, uh, dispersal from the premises. So some of them suggest that for every hour that a bar opens, that it increases the number of things like assaults. Um, but there's also some, some studies, like there's a study in, in Sweden that um, monitors uh, nightclubs were allowed to open an extra hour and found actually a decreased crime. But in that case, there was very open communication between the police and the premises themselves. And there's also inspectors coming in and out of the premises to check things that were, were operating as they should. So, I can't give you a Yeah. Um, so, yeah. if I could 
Uh, something to that. Yeah. Um, one of the major issues about alcohol consumption is that compared with, um, say, 40, 50 years ago, it's in real terms, it's considerably less expensive than what it once was. And I think price may be a major factor if if you want to lower alcohol consumption. I, I think there's some evidence, but not some preliminary evidence, maybe from Scotland, I think, that if you increase the minimum price per unit, alcohol consumption may fall. So there's an issue about affordability and alcohol consumption. Okay. Yeah, All right. Difficult. Thanks, Alex. Um, Kelly? Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you all for your papers and your presentations. Um, it's given me more questions than I thought I would ever have on this subject. No. <laughs> just um, looking at the nighttime economy, one thing I know, um, Aidan, you, you talked a lot about the impact on the hospitality industry, but as we know, it extends beyond that. I'm a bit concerned about the work that's been done in the nighttime economy with other types of businesses. So, for instance, taxis. Um, there is an impact on the working time directive and the amount of hours that taxi drivers can drive under their license. So say, for instance, a taxi driver does a school run in the afternoon, uh, and that's maybe their first jobs of the day. So that's three o'clock in the afternoon, maybe half two, three o'clock in the afternoon. If they are to also work the shift at that's now extended to three o'clock in the morning, they're way outside working time directive um, and the operating hours for taxis. Um, I take it you guys haven't had any papers or sight of anything coming from infrastructure talking about that nighttime economy, how we get people home? No. Um, from my perspective, no, I, I haven't. Um, uh, it's, it's not something I consider. It's a good point. Um, one thing I, I would say the answer point is the possibility that the that extended open hours will actually generate the poor over um, taxi drivers and increasing uh, payments in that sector. So I, I guess just a, a counter um, uh, consideration. Uh, to be honest, I, I don't agree on that one. I think actually it'll cut it down quite a bit because unless you have a contract for school, depending on late night opening uh, or late night coming home from pubs, that's for the part-time taxi drivers. It's not for the full-timers. Um, it's that working time directive. They'll end up losing their licence if they try to do daytime work and this very late, mor late night, early morning um, types of transport because if you're taking somebody for an hour you know driving for an hour to get them home and then back again you've lost any other trade and um, but it, it's something I think that we do need to consider I just want to go back as well to um, Eleanor's your point on clause two the the Scottish local licensing forms is really interesting because I had asked the the minister for or the department sorry for a bit of a breakdown on who currently holds licenses and I was told to go to the district courts to get the mm. detail on that 
that, um, I'm assuming then that something like this Scottish Local Licensing Forum would be able to hold a list of all the license holders with a little bit more detail attached to that, who the license holder is, um, sort of our Section 75 considerations. Is that what they do? I'm sure, um, I think that collection in general um, in Scotland seems to be a little better here in terms of licensed premises. Um, yeah, I'm sure they, they do have that on that. Um, I'm not saying that these are perfect yeah. forms, but it's just a very interesting example in terms of how you share intelligence on the impact of things like extended open arms. You know, they're still very good comes and comes with really good best practice and really run their businesses really well. But you want to be able to, for them, even share, um, you know, information that some some of their counterparts maybe aren't operating as, um, as they should. Um, I don't know what the infrastructure is here in terms of sharing that information, the flow of information between courts and the departments, between licensed premises and courts and departments, and also other other um, bodies like health trusts, for example. Yeah. And also within the bill, there's a lot of um, clauses to do with children and young people. So the the, the views of um, social workers, chief garden board, you know, they would also be important factors. I just don't know why that sits currently. It's interesting when you compare it to the other part of communities' consideration, you know, housing in local areas, as, as all MLAs will know, that there are local groupings come together, you know, of key stakeholders to discuss housing issues, whether it's pressure on housing, antisocial behaviour, it could be anything that they're discussing, and there's that multi-agency approach which works really, really well, including the police. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting... Um, way of looking at licensing as opposed to it just being in the courts and the and the department doesn't have the full information about all the license holders. It's actually the people who will be impacted and who can add value to considerations on licenses. Yeah, but I take it theirs is more, rather than issuing the license, theirs is more about what happens. They're more of an advisory body yeah. Yeah. and um, they can take part as well in, you know, appeals and things on, on um, premises. Licenses and give you more some more information. If you want on that, just a few pages of a bit more background on what those boards do and what their role is, how they fit into the licensing structure. I think it's just one of those things. You know, if we consider Northern Ireland, we're not homogenous the whole way across Northern Ireland. In my constituency. There wouldn't be any nightclubs, you know, that would be open to, you know, three three o'clock in the morning. Um, there's a lot of rural pubs where it would never come into consideration. Um, but it's interesting that in different areas there will be different reactions to the nighttime economy and people coming out of pubs and and the impact that it has on health um, and it would be interesting to see that sort of local input to something that's just seen as a as a wider project but no very good um, as i say my head's now melted trying to think of all these questions so thank you very much for that <laughs> thank you thanks kelly um Sinead? Sinead, are you there? No, I'll go to Mark and then I'll come back to Sinead. So, Mark, are you there? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still here, Chair. Uh, thank you for the presentation and, and the things like you said. It's thrown up a lot more questions and, and certainly, I think, vindicated in some way our decision, not just to extend uh, the consultation.
but the acceptance that we had as a committee that the bags in the consultation period were not going to have this uh, through and sorted for, for Easter uh, 21, that there's a lot of work to be done to get this right, and it's important that we take the time to do that rather than rush through something uh, half-baked. And, and the more we look into it, the more work we realise uh, that it does need done. Just in, in terms of what we point out, Kelly had made, on the taxi industry, you recall that it said that they should be uh, called in as part of the call for evidence too. But my experience would be that rather than create employment in the taxi industry, we have seen a decline in the number of taxi drivers for various reasons. And uh, from what I know, many taxi drivers will go out on a Friday or Saturday night with a target. They say, okay, when I make £150, I'm going home, or 200 or, or whatever. So the earlier they get that, the earlier they go home, and it leads to a situation later on at night then, uh, at, at kicking out time, there are fewer uh, on their own, and if kicking if kick out time, sorry, as I, I've described it, uh, is later, there's possibly going to be even fewer uh, taxis on the road, and, and you couldn't blame them, because the later it gets, generally the, the messier uh, it, it gets, but I think it is very important that we hear from that uh, industry. Mm. Also, I think in terms of the impact on staff in the hospitality sector themselves, uh, they, uh, the, the, there, there are clear issues there, and I, and I know that one of there's any work that has been done on that. And then in other jurisdictions, to look at the impact on them, because you're not just talking about uh, making a later uh, closing time, but you're also extending the drinking up time. Uh, which means people will be working for, well, not not huge amounts of pay by, by any means, but working the like, extremely anti-social hours, and then they'll be faced with the difficulty of trying, trying to get home if there are fewer taxis on their own as well. I think the key here, though, to, to remember is that bars, should this uh, legislation pass, don't have to stay open uh, till the time that they're allowed to. And I think flexibility is very important. I think, Eleanor, uh, the, the points that you touched on around major events were very interesting, uh, particularly regarding major events taking place elsewhere. So you could have a, a World Cup, you know, with strange kickoff times. You have matches kicking off at nine o'clock in the morning or, 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 or whatever. Would bars, in, in some instances, uh, want to open for that? And then who decides what's a major event and what isn't? You know, th th that could be uh, problematic as well. So uh, I think that the question we have to look at, uh, take this opportunity because we've given ourselves the time or will have the time to look at the very fundamentals of our licensing system and, and not just tinker uh, around with it. The, the surrender principle was what was mentioned there. I think that's something we have to look at rather than using that as a reason as to why we can't do other things. We have to look at those uh, core components and see if they need changed themselves to allow the industry to grow as an employer, you know, as an economic driver for the, the region. But we have to do everything we can to counter any problems that might be associated with it. And they were correctly touched upon in terms of the issues around policing. And, and, and I know uh, some of those were raised at the last stage in the assembly. Just in terms of your presentation, and, and I was interested that you noted, well, 
those of you that know that the evidence was there to suggest that there'd been a, a, a dramatic reduction in the amount of underage drinking, I think was it from 2011 uh, to, to, to 2016. Had there been any analysis done that as to why that is the case? I know there seems to have been, I think the chair identified maybe more alternatives in terms of coffee shops or, or that now. Maybe an increased focus on, on fitness and, and general health. But alarmingly, I would say, I know in our kind of anti-social hotspots or areas that would be popular with young ones to even drink their cardios. Many moons ago, I'd been getting phone calls from residents complaining about carpets and cans and bottles, uh, littering fields and laneways and warnings. Now that doesn't seem to be as much of an issue. Mm. But if you go to those same hotspots, you'd be hard for me to find the amount of little polythene bags lying around. And so I don't know if been perhaps an increase in accessibility to illegal drugs. Yeah. yeah. I suspect there are a number of factors implicated in that. Um, first of all, as you suggested, there may have been a move away from alcohol towards prescription drugs and illegal substances. Um, you see that more and more. So there would be one factor, um, alcohol among young people isn't as cool as it once was in, in my time, in my generation, I cohort. <laughs> but I think the other factor is as uh, the culture and myself also in. And, and, and indicated when I was a young, um, I was in my, my 20s and the 1970s, right at the beginning of the conflict here, and almost the only places where young people were able to socialize were. Um, venues um, selling alcohol, whether that was in bars or, or, or clubs or whatever. So there were very few outlets for young people where alcohol wasn't available. Now it is, there's a whole range of other options like ice cream parlors, chocolate tears, um, coffee bars, which have sprung up everywhere. So there are more choices available to young people than there were when I was growing up in the 1970s, 80s, you know? So I think that, that, that there's two factors, um, but there may also uh, be others as well, I'm not certain, but there are the two most obvious which spring to mind, you know? Okay, thank you. And in, in terms of, of your presentation and the piece on the economic impact of the hospitality sector, and, and, and it's undoubted, the contribution that it does make, uh, 
Uh, so similar to that, uh, so further, I know this is distillation, but a breakdown of that, so you could see similarly the impact of the off-sales sector on the, the, the wider economy, and then uh, uh, same work has been done when we look then at the COVID impact on the sector, we see how hospitality has, has, has been hammered. Yet, I think it's fair enough to assume, and I'm sure the evidence is there, that all sales have, have, have skyrocketed. Um, I, I, would, I would need to look into that. Um, the problem often with, with the data is that uh, the, the segregation of it isn't uh, fine enough detail to get that sort of level of, uh, of understanding. But I'm happy to, to, to have a look at it and see what other sort of studies there have been. On, on the off-sales and I can get the bachelor's, that's okay. Super, super thank you. And, and then on the issue and uh, the, the discount schemes and the way the evidence last week or, or the week before from Aidan Connolly and, and he actually raised the point that I, I hadn't considered and that was around you know these points that some of the bigger supermarkets would use and how they, 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 they can be offset against the cost of alcohol and how difficult it would be for supermarkets to do away uh, with that system. Or, or, or and how unfair it would be to people living here. My concern would be now, and, and I don't know if it's one that would be shared by, by all our members, is that if we do away with the discount scheme, except for supermarkets, it's, it makes the playing field even more uneven. And I know many in the sector, in fact, that I can't think of any in the sector who don't say that it's already an uneven uh, playing field. Uh, I'm sorry, Chair, I, I forgot to declare an interest this time as we have to. That's okay. Yeah. You finished? Um, Who was going yeah, to? Yeah, no. All right, okay. Aidan, did you want to come in there? Uh, no, it's oh, just. You're all right? Uh, okay. All right. Okay, that's grand. Okay, thank you, Aidan. Um, I know Sinead had her hand up earlier and then we kind of lost that. So I'm going to ask Sinead. I don't want to finish without asking her. There's just back on. Sinead, have you anything you want to ask? Can't hear you, Sinead. You must be on silent. Oh, sorry. There you are. Thank you. Thanks for bringing me back into it. I appreciate that. Yeah, and um, you know, just th thanks to the guys for the presentations. It's definitely going to help us now going forward, and um, in terms of um, you know, being able to uh, question any any witnesses that we get and um, before the committee. It's just a point um, that was raised whenever Aidan uh, Connolly was at the committee last week, um, and I'm just wondering if it, if it could be included in any sort of future. Um, research papers that were getting to the committee and it was just the point around advertising and how how that impacts on the issue of problem drinking. Um, so it, it's just, I would like to say just, um, even if it's, there isn't a study specific to here in the north, if, if there are studies done elsewhere across these islands, we could just get a bit more information on how um, how advertising and, and um, how that impacts on, on problem drinking and how the regulation of, of advertising could help to, to address that problem. If there was any sort of information on that, um, I, I would certainly find that, that helpful going forward. We yeah, can, yeah. Oh, sorry, we can contact some of our counterparts down south. It's, just, you, it's in the paper, you probably already know of the Public Health Alcohol Act down south because you know, there's a whole raft of um, advertising restrictions that's introduced, which is you know, alcohol, um, 
condoms or children's clothing, um, alcohol advertising within the vicinity of um, uh, schools or on public transport. So they may have already done a body of work into that, and in Scotland as well. So I'm sure there's some material that we can get you on that. Yeah, thank you, Anna. I appreciate that. Okay, thanks, Sinead. Um, Robin? Is just just a short question, Chair, to to Ray, if I can. I, I find the, the figure one uh, that you've outlined in your presentation: the alcohol-specific deaths by registration, uh, year, and gender. Um, obviously, there's a growing uh, increase uh, in alcohol-related deaths there. But when you move to your figure three on the data on alcohol admissions. And it indicates that uh, there is a, a decreasing, a very sharp decreasing rate on admissions to hospital um, for alcohol uh, disorders. Do you mean? Yes. Yeah, I, I wonder, do you know why is one increasing and the other isn't? A very, very sharp decrease in, in figure three that you've yes. outlined. It is actually, I'm just looking at it here in, in, the, in the three years from 2016 to 2019, it fell to 673 yep. per 100,000. Yep. Uh, five years earlier, it was 728. Yep. I should also add, however, if you go back to Figure one, you will see. I'm just looking at that. Yeah, you will see during the, that brief period, especially in, in the last uh, two to three years, uh, the number of alcohol deaths has also fallen as well. So they're kind of way in sync, to, at least to some extent. You know, um, alcohol. Stop it, Ray, Ray. Figure one shows to me from 2013 right through to 17, uh, an, an annual increase, and then on 17 to 18 it shows a. Uh, Sorry, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and that doesn't seem. Twenty thirteen fourteen, then you're seeing a decrease in. I'm not sure why. I'm not certain there has they have to be in complete 
synchronization, you know, they both have to be falling at the same rate. I just, I, I would need to look at that, but I don't, it, it, I'm not certain there's any simple explanation for that. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's too simple to take as just, uh, I mean, it may well be that there are other forms of treatment that you don't... Yeah, there are other factors involved in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, yeah. I'm sorry, I can't be more helpful there, but I don't see an obvious um, explanation there for that. No, no. I suppose if I could just say on that, as someone who worked in, in the health service for a number of years, I mean, the way that we categorise and we capture data of hospital admissions um, is not necessarily, it could be someone is admitted and their admission will say they were admitted with uh, a respiratory condition. But that respiratory condition could have been a direct impact of. Oh, so very rarely, does, and that's where the data collection again is is it can be a bit skewed when it comes to the health service because their way of capturing data yeah. is very it's not a black and white way of capturing it. Um, and it's the same with the deaths. I said to Ray earlier with with registering deaths as well. Um, it's not always. It's sometimes the secondary cause is the cause of death and not the primary. Um, so I, it's all a wee bit ambiguous, I think, when it comes okay. to especially health figures, you know. Okay, folks, I think that's pretty much everybody has asked, and we got to, thank you very much for uh, giving us the the, the understanding of listening to us as well of some of our questions. Um, it really was very worthwhile. I, you know, you've done a fantastic job for us. Um, I suppose just to say then to the committee, then with, it, with the committee then, can I propose that the clerk then goes away and looks at more detail um, at these research papers and some of the gaps and some of the questions that have been highlighted here. And I know Kelly will certainly, if you have any extra questions as well, um, if we can feed those questions through then, because then there's something that then we would want to be putting to the department, a lot of these issues that have been raised um, from, the, from the paper. So thank you, folks. Really appreciate it. Really do. And no thank doubt we will, be, we will be calling on your expertise as we go along. So thank you. Yes, please. Thank you, Thank you very much. Okay, members, we're going to then move swiftly on because we know we have a, we're time bound as always in our morning meetings. Um, so if we can move then along to agenda item seven and eight to know we stop tripping over things, Thomas. Um, uh, <clears throat> okay. Uh, let me say agenda item seven and eight: departmental briefing on SL1's registration of clubs accounts regulations NI2020 and the licensing of registration of clubs amendment act northern ireland 2011 commencement number six order ni 2020 that was really easy for me to say um can i inform members they've been provided with a copy of the sl1 starting at page 218 of your meeting pack and then can i welcome to the meeting carol reed and eamon diver i can see carol on is eamon on maybe eamon's maybe on under a different okay. name Okay. I can hear you. I just can't see your name up. That's the problem. But I can certainly hear you, so I can. Okay. Um, we're under a little bit of time pressure, as you know, today. I, I asked for this to come back because I had some questions around it. So, Carl, could I, if, if it's yourself, whoever it is, could you make it? Could you just give us a pretty brief outline? Um, uh, because it, it was just one or two questions that I have, that's all. If you if you could yes, go ahead. Um, 
Well, here, what about Carl? I'd explain what my concerns are because it might be to do with the background actually as well. Um, the, the some of the concerns that I had had over this were coming from whenever I had met with uh, clubs. So I had a lot with some part, some of my party members, and the clubs are saying that um, uh, the bigger clubs were perfectly fine with you know the way that they have to uh, their accountancy and especially those that sell alcohol and what they have to do and the rules and regulations around that mm -hmm. and they were perfectly acceptance acceptive of that and said yes we understand fully but there are a lot of smaller clubs out there that have very very few members and they're put under extreme pressures then um, to spend vast amounts of money which they don't have um, when it comes to their accountancy, and albeit they do accept that they the, the regulations state they have to um, do all of these things. So um, it was just that's where I that's why I'd asked this to come back. That this maybe has nothing to do with that at all, and um, maybe you'll tell me no, this is not this is not what this is about. Um, but just that's. Well, kind of... well, well, yeah. Go ahead, Carol. Yeah,
No, I think, Carl, you have answered all of my queries that I had, because definitely that's what was brought up with me. And they, as I say, they weren't, they weren't saying that uh, they weren't complaining about having, um, the, having regulation in place, because they absolutely agree 100%. But we do know of, and many of our constituencies will maybe have a, a very small club, could it be a cricket club, could it be anything, a bowling club. Um, with a with a, a bar that has a small membership, and it was just uh, you know it was costing them more money to do these returns than it was actually what they were making. Um, so that no, I think that's good news. It certainly, um, I know we have the clubs in next week um, briefing us on on the on the, the bill. Um, so that just in case they might have they knew it wasn't under the competency of the bill, but they they might bring it up. But that so no, Kyle, thank you. There you go. You've answered my questions. I'll ask if any, if any members have any questions, or was it just me? Any members any questions on that? Are everybody happy enough with that then? Yeah? Yeah. Okay, look, Carl and Eamon, and sorry Eamon, we didn't even get speaking to you. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for, for that clarity. I, I am sure that there will be plenty of clubs out there that will be very glad, and this will be very welcome news for them, so thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye, bye, bye. Okay, folks, then we can move then on to agenda item nine, which is a briefing again by Reyes. My goodness, I don't think this has ever happened in, in this committee before. Going back, um, and this is on our sign language legislation, another really, really important piece of, of legislation that the committee has great interest in. Members, you'll find this at page 227 of your meeting packs. And then can I welcome then Karen McCallion from Assembly Research. Karen, you're very welcome. Do you want to go ahead and give us a, a, a brief briefing? Sure, absolutely. So um, I, I've got about 10 minutes to run through here. Is that, is that okay? Or do you want me to go even shorter? <laughs> no, Karen, Karen, I think that's okay. I mean, it, this is just a, it's a, you know, a research briefing. It's not, we're not going to bombard you with questions, I wouldn't hope. And we do have a, we will have a briefing on the, um, from the, the sign language people in, in January anyway. So just go ahead. Okay, all right, thank you. Thanks very much, Chair, and um, good afternoon, members, and, and thank you for having uh, me along today. Um, as the Chair mentioned, you'll find a copy of this paper uh, on page 227 of your packs, and um, this paper is an overview of approaches to sign language legislation in Scotland and Ireland, and it compares these acts with proposals for legislation in Northern Ireland. So, in the briefing today, I'm going to discuss three areas. Um, I'll first give you some background information about sign languages. Um, second, I'll briefly describe the international conventions regarding sign language protections, and I'll summarise the British Sign Language Act of Scotland from 2015 and the Irish Sign Language Act of 2017. And then third, I'll compare and contrast the Scottish and Irish Sign Language Acts with proposals for legislation in, in this jurisdiction. So one of the common aims of the sign language legislation is to promote awareness. Um, so I'll, just, I'll start by describing some common misconceptions about sign languages, which you can find on page 237. First of all, British Sign Language and Irish Sign Language are distinct languages, and this means they don't depend on, and they're not strongly related to the spoken versions of English and Irish. Um, they have their own sentence structure and grammar, and this is one of the reasons why expecting deaf sign language users to use English text services, such as subtitling, is not always an appropriate um, uh, way in which to, uh, to, to communicate. Um, sign languages are three-dimensional, and by this I mean they depend on facial gestures as well as body language to convey meaning. And the reason I mention that is because some meaning can be lost 
when two-dimensional forms of um, communication are used, such as video conferencing. Also, British Sign Language is not the same as Sign Supported English, and one of the versions of that you may have heard of is Makaton. Uh, Makaton uses gestures from British Sign Language as well as signs and speech, but it follows the grammar of spoken English, so it's, it's not the same as British Sign Language. And there isn't a universal sign language, um, so users of American, British and Australian sign languages wouldn't necessarily understand each other. And also there's variances between different regions as well, so this can cause complications for UK-wide provision of services um, where there are different versions in different regions. And also with our sign language, um, users, male and female users have different versions as well. So all of these points are important to, to note when, when considering proposals for the legislation, particularly when thinking about the provision of communication services. So while researching the reasons why sign language legislation is being proposed in Northern Ireland, a few key points came to light, and I'll address these now, and they can be found on pages 238 to 242 of the paper. The first key point, um, which actually relates to some of the discussion that we've had earlier today as well, is the challenge of finding um, baseline data on the number of British and Irish sign language users in Northern Ireland. And I mentioned this because trying to plan future resources will be difficult as the, the number of users that I find through the different uh, pieces of research that are out there vary so widely. So the point was highlighted as a concern when the Culture Arts and Leisure Committee were briefed by the department in 2014. Figures that are most regularly quoted are 7,500 deaf sign language users, uh, with 5,000 of those using British Sign Language and 2,500 um, using Irish Sign Language. And when you include family, friends, teachers and interpreters in that figure, it rises to around 18,000 sign language users in Northern Ireland. However, this, this number has been um, questioned by some researchers in, in Queen's University in Belfast. Um, the department uh, reported from the Continuous Household Survey in 2013-2014 that 9% of adults in Northern Ireland can communicate using sign language, 8% of those using British Sign Language, and 1% using Irish Sign Language. Now, however, the World Health Organization uses a different uses a ratio that changes that number again, so their ratio is 1 to 1,000. So as you can see, there's a, there's a large difference in the, in the numbers quoted. Um, however, there's an opportunity in the 2021 census to try and address this and in Scotland's national plan, which has resulted from their Scottish Sign Language legislation, addressing the data gap is the first action listed out of the 70 actions that they have in the national plan. So it's a difficulty that exists in other jurisdictions as well. Another key consideration um, that came up through the research was addressing the different perceptions or, or attitudes to deafness. And the reason I'm, I want to talk a little bit about this is because the research shows these different attitudes actually have played an influence on the type of legislation and protections um, that are available. So academic research on deaf studies describes cultural, social, medical, um, and medical attitudes to deafness. And the medical view of deafness tends to perceived deafness as a loss that can be fixed. Um, so a lot of the disability legislation would come in uh, under that sort of um, attitude. Um, the social perception views the environment as a disabling um, factor to assign language users, and so that, that sort of view tends to encourage the provision of access to communication services and promotes integration. And then the cultural model acknowledges the cultural and linguistic value of sign languages and the community of sign language users. 
And this means recognizing the sign language user community as having their own behaviors, values, knowledge, and fluency in sign languages. And the recognition and promoting awareness of sign languages that are included in many of the sign language acts around the world. Uh, this is in response to, this, to the cultural view of deafness. So this is, this is relevant to the situation here because at present most of the protections for the deaf community in Northern Ireland come under the Disability Discrimination Act of 1995, Section 75 of the Northern Ireland Act of 1998 and the Disability Discrimination Northern Ireland Order in 2006. Um, in England, Scotland and Wales, there's also the Equality Act of 2010, but that doesn't form part of the law um, in Northern Ireland. So in this, these disability inequality pieces of legislation, the key term is the provision of reasonable adjustments. And in the main, this usually refers to access to communication services, such as an interpreter. And why I mentioning this is, is twofold. First, to access these reasonable adjustments, there is no, um, where there is no sign language legislation, then deaf sign language users need to identify as disabled, and, and many in the deaf community want to be recognised as a cultural linguistic minority. And second, the research shows that the provision of reasonable adjustments such as sign language interpreters to support with access to health, education and other services is still hard despite the disability legislation. And a House of Commons uh, early day motion in 2013 suggested this difficulty of access and communication services was due to a lack of public awareness of sign language and interpreters. So recognition and in turn raising public awareness are, are key points within sign language legislation. And the research has shown that the employment, health and educational outcomes for people who are deaf are poorer than the, hear the hearing community. Um, and this is despite the disability legislation that's been in place since the 90s, 1990s. So next, I'm going to mention some of the international conventions that seek to protect sign language users. And you can find details of these on pages 243 and 244. The reason I mention these is because elements of the Scottish and Irish sign language legislation are similar to some of the articles in these, in these conventions. So if you turn to page 243 and refer to table three, um, the commitments included in parts two and three of the Council of Europe's Charter for Regional and Minority Languages are similar to elements in both the Scottish and the Irish Sign Language Acts. And I'll discuss these elements further in the next part of the briefing. Other international conventions um, to consider include the, the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. They both include articles relevant to sign language legislation and in Wales, where the UNCRC is part of its domestic law through the rights of children and young people, Wales measure of 2011. One of the results of this legislation is that families with deaf children are provided with support to learn the sign language. So next part of the briefing will cover the different forms of legislation in Scotland and Ireland and compare this with the proposals um, for legislation in Northern Ireland. So if we refer to table four on page 252, I've created a, a, a matrix to help compare the Scottish and Irish sign language acts with the proposals for legislation in Northern Ireland. Now from the research into different examples of sign language legislation that exists around the world, there seems to be sort of four recurring themes that start to emerge. There's the recognition element, the responsibility, communication services, and then the reporting. And these four themes are included to varying degrees in the Irish and the Scottish Sign Language Acts, as well as the proposals for Northern Ireland. So the, the Scottish Sign Language legislation follows a similar approach to that used in the Gaelic Language Scotland Act of 2005. 
Um, the similarity in the GB Select station is the placing of the GB on public authorities to produce plans of how they're going to support the use of the language. A difference is that the Gaelic legislation establishes an organisation to implement the legislation by managing that planning and review process. And in the British Sign Language Scotland Act, the responsibility for this activity is with the Scottish ministers. So the resulting Scottish British Sign Language National Plan was, was then published in 2017. It included 70 actions and 10 long-term goals for Scottish ministers. And another significant difference between the Scottish Act and the, the Act in Ireland and proposals in Northern Ireland is the acknowledgement of the tactile form of British Sign Language, which the community of um, deafblind users use. So in terms of the provision of communication services, the Irish legislation makes specific reference to legal proceedings, early years provisions, education, regulation of interpretation services, broadcasting and events access. And the, in the proposals for Northern Ireland, both of these approaches are used, so the, the sort of inclusion of plans, the preparation, publication and implementation of plans is proposed as a function uh, of executive ministers, which is then similar to the Scottish Act. Um, free classes for families of deaf children, the use of sign languages in legal proceedings, interpreter provision and regulation as well as provision of continuing education requirements are also specifically mentioned in the, in, uh, the, the, the draft proposals for Northern Ireland. So in the paper, I've described the accompanying policies, um, which are the National Listed Authorities Plans in Scotland and the National Disability Inclusion Strategy in Ireland. And in Northern Ireland, it's the Sign Language Framework. But for the next part of this briefing, I'll just keep it to high level review of the legislation rather than going into those policies. So some key points when you're comparing the three the approaches to sign language legislation around recognition of sign language is handled differently in each jurisdiction. In Scotland, rec recognition is the duty of the Scottish ministers. In Ireland, the ISL user community has the right to use, develop and preserve Irish sign, Irish sign language. And in Northern Ireland, Irish and British sign languages are to be defined and recognised as official languages to guarantee services. Also, the sign language user community have the right to develop, uh, use and preserve the language and the culture. Also in each jurisdiction, a minister is given lead or special responsibility. It's the Minister for Child Care and Early Years in Scotland. In Ireland, it's the Minister for Justice and Equality, and in Northern Ireland, it's the Minister for Communities. However, to support a collaborative and effective response, all Scottish ministers are responsible for laying plans with the Scottish Parliament and for their departments and associated listed authorities. In the Irish Act, the Minister for Education and Skills, the Minister for Employment Affairs and Social Protection, and the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform are all specifically mentioned in the legislation, as well as the Minister for Justice and Equality. And in Northern Ireland, functions of the executive ministers are included as part of the proposals for the sign language legislation. Now, when you compare the access and communication services with regards to justice or in years education interpretation, the Scottish National Plans is where they've laid out 10 long-term goals and 70 actions with regards to these. Um, the Irish legislation, however, makes specific reference to details regarding the use of sign language in these um, various different areas, and this is similar uh, to the approach that's been taken in Northern Ireland. So the reporting and the review process is included in both the Scottish and Irish Acts, but it's not in the Northern Irish proposals, although reporting is mentioned in the accompanying Northern Ireland Sign Language Framework. And in Scotland, um, the Act received royal assent in October 2015, 
the national plan was published in 2017, and the first review was due to be published in October 2020, but it's been postponed until 2021, until uh, due to COVID-19. And in Ireland, the Act doesn't actually commence until December 2020, so there are no reviews of progress published as yet. So lastly, I'll just conclude by mentioning some considerations for the development of the legislation and for that process in the next coming months. Um, some of the best practice that's emerged um, during the research um, that, that was completed for this paper is this, this idea of the, the co-design of the legislation and the importance of that and, and the supporting policies and, and doing that, 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 that co-design piece with the sign language user community and its supporting organisations. And also in terms of a, of a, of a way to, to communicate with the community, um, the use of social media to engage um, has also been viewed as best practice as well. So thank you, Chair, and I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you, Karen, and that was done in record-breaking time, I think, that's evidence session. Um, again, we, I don't know if you listen, were listening to part of our previous briefing um, with Reyes about the, the lack of good quality data, and I mean, it's absolutely here again, you know, that we don't have that data for people that use either BSL or ISL, and you're telling us then it would be 2021 until the census before that data then would be uh, compiled, which is a bit, it, it is a bit, it's a bit strange really when it comes to the, the data gathering here in Northern Ireland in general. You know, how do we know how much money to, to put into anything if we don't have the data to back that up? So that, that's just an, a, a sideline and it's a real gripe of mine when it comes to data gathering. Um, I, you, I, I mentioned there we have we have a briefing session early January from some uh, users um, in relation to the VRS system, and I know when I've met with them, they've talked about Scotland and about their legislation, and, and um, it, I think it has been set up as almost nearly a, a model. Uh, of how to do things right, and I know that the minister has plans um, to bring forward um, our legislation soon. That we'll, we'll, we'll get to see that soon in the committee here. So it's just really then to ask you: Is there anything jumping out at you that we need to prioritise within that? I do imagine, Karen. Whenever we do get that legislation in front of us, we'll have you with us again just to refresh us and go through all of that. But it's just really just to ask you at this stage. Is there anything jumping out at you that we need to, to, to look at as a matter of priority? Yeah, well, as part of this research, as well as looking at best practice in, uh, and what's happened in, in Scotland and Ireland, I've also looked at um, the different jurisdictions around the world that have sign language legislation. And I think one of the things that, although it's mentioned in the sign language framework, uh, the Northern Ireland sign language framework, it's not in the, in the proposals for legislation, is around that reporting piece. And um, that's having a, had a look through the, the debates and, and, and some of the um, some of the reports that have come out from different um, supporting organisations in Scotland. Having that those deadlines and having and having that side of things is, is really key. So that might be something to talk to the um, the department around um, in terms of you know sort of the, the, the reason behind not including that in the in the legislation proposals. Um, I think as well that, that co-design piece is, is really uh, important and how, how Scotland managed to um, ensure that there was collaboration across um, the different departments was, was around placing the responsibility on the, on the Scottish Minister. So it's included in the Northern Ireland proposals, but it's definitely something 
um, you know, to sort of keep in mind as a key point for, for this as well. And you mentioned that the VRS, um, you know, that there's a good example of where that's, you know, health and communities um, departments need to work together for that. So, you know, that, that's something that um, for the justice, access to justice, that requires a couple of departments working together and um, the same with education as well and the, the regulation of interpreters. Yeah, thanks for that, and absolutely agree with you that that co-design and it is it is it's across the entire assembly, every part of every facet of the assembly that we need to make this do this right. But also the co-design needs to involve um, all of those people that use uh, the, the sign language on a daily basis or whatever other method they may use to communicate. Um, that that they are part of this as well. And I mean, I know certainly as as the committee, we will want to make sure we include as many people as possible. Um, uh, whether that's through written or, or oral evidence or sign evidence. Um, so, look, thanks for that. I know Kelly will be eager to ask a few questions here. Kelly? Sure. Yeah. Excuse me. Sorry. Yes, go ahead. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to check, um, whenever you did the comparison, it's um, page 252, it's um, table 4, when the comparison of the Irish and British sign language in the Northern Ireland draft proposals bit concerned here um, that the proposals seem to current, I'll just see if I'm reading this right, the proposals are looking at early years, but there are a number of people like myself whose um, hearing impairments and deafness um, come about later in life, but there's nothing seems to be included within our proposals going forward for later life learning. Um, did you come across anything like that? Yeah, so there, there's in the education bit, there's the um, continuing educational requirements, and in the in the framework, there's there's specific reference to um, opportunities around. Uh, so if you're maybe talking about uh, learning sign language later on, that you know there, there's there's this, there's a discussion in the, the sign language framework about addressing that. But you're right, it's, it's not specifically in, in the legislation and the proposals as they are at the moment. Yeah, I'd be keen to see that changed because we have an instance where age-related disabilities that happen to someone after they hit pension age, you basically have all supports removed. And that's the time when an awful lot of adults whose hearing then deteriorates to the point where they could be using sign language because even hearing aids won't help them, um, isn't there. The other thing I wanted to just check was really interesting when you said, I think it was Scotland, named the other ministers um, because we do have a situation at the moment where there are people um, who are deaf and as you know, as you've recognised in your report, um, there are a number of deaf people whose educational outcomes are not fantastic. Um, but for those who, who are lucky enough and have a good education and can proceed to post um, post-school educate, you know, uh, further education and higher education, um, they're being turned down for financial support for um, interpreters because the money isn't made available for some types of courses. So um, I noticed that Scotland named ministers. So would you advise then that that would be something we should look at replicating, perhaps? And, and so yeah, so I think the, um, in Scotland it was across the board in terms of the ministers supporting plans. So um, it, it, it's what I can what I can send through to you is really the, the, what they did in Scotland is created a, a website that sort of very clearly lists out. The, the seventy actions and the ten plans and, and ten long term goals and how that sits under each different department. Um, and then in Ireland, they named four or five specific um, uh, ministers as well in the legislation. Um, and that, 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 that refers then to the national uh, 
inclusion strategy, the disability inclusion strategy as well. So yes, it's that in terms of that collaborative piece, um, that that's important to, to make sure that because it's the funding allocations. Otherwise, it's, it, it, it's then you know the the one of the budgets that I've looked at for the department at the moment. It's you know it's a that would need to be increased if we're looking at those uh, provisions um, in the long term. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was professionals um, learning sign language to be able to provide more inclusive services. Um, we did have a situation until it was rectified recently where the Department of Education, um, the Jordanstown School for the Deaf and Blind, um, had teachers, you have to have an additional qualification to be able to teach children who are deaf and use sign language and the same for children who are blind um, and to be honest the school was actually funding that additional training until the Department of Education realised or were reminded that they you know that was an additional qualification that they required but I'm just thinking about across the health service social services um, teachers oh it's massive even it's mentioned justice you know access to, access to communication services is there is there doesn't seem to be anything built into that to encourage and improve professionals to undertake sign language training. It's it's all about the use of interpreters as opposed to people learning them. Yeah. And I think I mean that, that that's something in the Irish legislation and, and the and the resulting policies that have come out of that. Um, I, I've got quite a bit of evidence about different approaches that have been taken there. So that, that's something I can I can share with you too. Yeah. Um, if, if if that's useful. But uh, that is, you're right. It's 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 something that it's in the sign language framework, um, and it um, and it would be useful for it to be in about inclusion in the um, legislation as well. And it'd be interesting to see how effective it has been at actually being rolled out across those professional services. I'm imagining, for instance, GPs, you know, unless you have an interpreter there and, and you use sign language, so that's very impersonal, and loses your, your privacy. How many GPs have actually taken that up? How many do provide services for sign language users? I wonder if there's anything from the Irish, um, you know, that can reflect on how well this has been implemented and taken up. Absolutely. I think in terms of the scenario in, in Northern Ireland, um, the um, health service, um, the HSCB, has, has created a paper looking at communication services, and there's a number of recommendations that came out of that, including um, the use of VRS, which, uh, as you know, there, there are difficulties with using that, but also then the interpretation support. And one of the key things that has come out of some of the reviews that I've seen, uh, the initial reviews in, in Scotland, is that um, that it's the interpretation support that's needed? Say, if you're a student at university and you're, it's that the the, um, the the skill that's needed in terms of interpreting some of the, the contents that will be discussed, say, in a in a lecture. That you know, having the, the interpreters to be able to translate that, that you know, that that's something that um, it needs to be sort of thought through um, in, in the longer term planning of this as well. Yeah. My final question is anything about enforcement? Because too often we hear we just don't have the money for that, or you know, if it's not written down in black and white, we 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 don't have to do that. You know, we can make do. What? How have the other areas dealt with enforcement to ensure that the legislation has gone through? And and is it actually just lip service to enforcement, or is it is it actual? You know, what what does that mean, or what does that look like in other places? Well, so at the moment in Ireland, the, the, um, it hasn't come into force yet, so that will happen in December 2020, so that there are no reviews at the moment. Um, uh, and then with, in Scotland, 
there was supposed to be a review in October uh, 2020, but due to COVID-19, that's been um, pushed out to um, October 2021. Um, although I, I, there, there, there's some reviews that have come in for the uh, listed authorities in Scotland, so um, definitely that would be something to, to look into as well. That those are starting to come through now and, and be published. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Kelly, and thanks, Karen. No other members indicated at this stage they want to come in. So, can I thank you? No doubt, um, we will be um, calling on your expertise um, as we the bill is presented to us, and certainly there might be some questions. And following, as I say, the the witness session that we have in January, that yeah. we might fire your way as well. Um, so, for the time being, Karen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, members, then, if we can move swiftly along to agenda item number 10, which is correspondence, you'll find the memo at page 268 of your meeting pack. Um, the committee has received a memo from the Committee for Infrastructure regarding SR 2022-49, the Taxi Driver Coronavirus Financial Assistance Regulations Northern Ireland 2020. Um, the committee noted the possible adverse effects that the taxi driver scheme may have on those recipients who may also be in receipt of benefits and agreed they asked the Committee for Communities to consider taking this issue up in the Department for Communities. Are members content that we write to the Department on this matter? Agreed. All agreed? Yes. Oh, I have nothing infrastructure. Sorry. I have nothing else I want to bring up under correspondence. Our members... Yeah, Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. Can I, Chair, uh, take on board that this uh, correspondence was from the Infrastructure Committee and was pertaining to that particular uh, fund? But uh, the Department of Financial Assistance schemes across a number of departments, including those within uh, communities that do have and will have similar implications for people's access to benefits. So while we might major on or lead with the taxi uh, fund-related query, uh, I think that it should could be and should be possibly more general as well. Okay, fair enough, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's grand. I have no other comments. Anybody else, any comments on the memo, Kelly? Yeah, it's the, the last one on page 268 where it talks about the Shared Prosperity Fund. This is really starting to panic me now. Um, I think we need to get an update from the department on what's going on with the Shared Prosperity Fund. There was an announcement made yesterday by the Chancellor. Um, I'm not clear that it's actually going to cover all that communities and the Minister will need. Um, so it would be very useful if we could either get an update from communities or economy. Um, I'm not sure which one to, to let us know what's actually happened with this because if that Shared Prosperity Fund doesn't deliver, then we're looking at supported employment, we're looking at a lot of community and voluntary sector problems, um, so it would be good to get an update on that from the committee if we could. I uh, remember, I think it was the finance minister was asked a few questions on it this yeah. week in the chamber as well, yeah. um, so there's still not a, a much clarification on it, but yes, certainly that we will ask for that. Sinead, did you want to come in there? Did I see your hand up or were you just, no? No, that's okay. Just double checking. So, are members then content with the correspondence memo other than um, just the, that change has been made by Mark and Kelly? Yes, all content. Okay, then we'll move on to agenda item 11, which is forward work programme. Members, um, that the meeting on the 3rd of December next week will be briefed by the Northern Ireland Brewery and Independent Pub Association on the licensing, and then we'll also be briefed by the Northern Ireland Federation of Clubs on the licensing and registration of clubs bill, and then we'll have a departmental briefing on the allocation of COVID funding to the arts sector. 
and also then we'll have Peter Corey who uh, is going to come in and brief us on the impact of COVID-19 also on the arts sector. Members, any comments on that? Content with that? Yes? Agreed? Okay then, I'm going to move to agenda item 12 which is any other business? Members, any other business? No, nothing? From, okay. Then I'll move on to agenda item 13, which is date, time and location of our next meeting. Our next meeting will take place here in room 29 next week, Thursday, 3rd of December at 10am. Thank you, members. Thank you.